Thank you. I'd like to call to order the City Council meeting on March the 7th, 2023. Tonight's meeting is a hybrid meeting. Community members are welcome to join us either in person or remotely through Zoom or by telephone. Clerk, will you please call the roll? Councilmember Nixon? Here. Councilmember Black? Here. Councilmember Curtis? Here. Councilmember Falcone? Here. Councilmember Pascal? Here. Deputy Mayor Arnold? Here. Mayor Sweet? Here. Thank you. Our study session tonight is on two topics. The first is a Google Fiber discussion. The second is for a Northeast 85th Street Station Area Plan Phase 2 briefing. We will expect to reconvene our regular meeting at approximately 7.30 p.m. City Manager. Okay, thank you, Madam Mayor. So, um, as you mentioned, our first topic is Google Fiber. We were approached last fall by representatives of Google Fiber about um, their desire to want to talk to us about having them build a fiber network um, on their own cost, but in Kirkland right-of-way. Uh, staff has met with them several times to make sure we understood the proposal well enough to bring it to you for an initial discussion. What we're looking for in this study session is sort of what questions do you have? What more would you like to know? Are you interested in us continuing to go forward with at least exploring the option or not? So uh, tonight's presentation is going to be done in partnership between Shawning Zhang, who's our technology and resiliency officer, who's going to focus a lot on the fiber side, and then Julie Underwood, our public works director, who's going to talk about the potential challenges and opportunities in the city right-of-way. With that, right. good, evening. good evening, Council. Um, we have about nine slides, so it should hopefully go pretty quick to allow you to uh, give us input and feedback. Um, Shawnee's going to kick us off with um, why would we even consider this? So what are the benefits for this? Shanine, are you there? Yeah. All right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Julie, and good evening. Madam Mayor and the members of the council. Uh, before I talk about high level concept of the Google Fiber proposal and its benefit to the community, I'd like to share a couple of maps to provide some context. Um, the first map you're seeing on the screen is, uh, um, is showing the uh, Washington State Broadband Office 2020 internet speed survey results which highlighting the reported speed in our area and uh, report the average reported speed for downloading is around 100 megabytes and uh, upload speed is around uh, 40 megabytes, even though Kirkland area does have some, you know, high speed available. Um, and the second map, um, Julie, can you? Yeah, the second map is the uh, our Kirkland city-owned fiber network map, which shows the current connectivity extent. So those highlighted color is Kirkland-owned. So as described in the staff memo, um, Google Fiber approached the city and proposed to deploy a gigabyte speed fiber to the home network in Kirkland. The proposal package includes citywide deployment over a two-year period. And the company will cover the entire expenses for installation and ongoing maintenance and provides the multiple gigabyte speed products to consumers, including either one gig, two gig, or five gigabytes. And the company also will primarily using the micro-trenching 
for installation and is open to discuss um, joint trenching to potentially expand the city's existing fiber network. So we're kind of excited and uh, um, we know the implementation of the Google Fiber um, Gigabytes Fiber to the Home Network in Kirkland could offer many benefits to the community, um, which include advancement of cities, diversity, equity, inclusion, and uh, belonging objectives, 18.3, and which means the city will explore continued and expanded opportunities to make internet access available to all. And in addition to creating access, reduced fee for low-income residents could be explored in the franchise agreement, so which provides some opportunity to improve digital equity and enhance the quality of life for all. And another benefit is the um, it will promoting healthy competition amongst the all internet service providers, which will result in you know upgraded speeds and improved services and reduce the price and improve overall consumer satisfaction. And through joint trenching, the city will potentially enhance the resiliency of the existing fiber infrastructure, which including reducing single point of failure and uh, uh, enhancing connectivity to other public owned facilities and assets. And also joint attention could increase the capacity for supporting future city services and smart initiatives, such as intelligent transportation systems and other IoT devices. So yeah, so there's um, also staff projects, they might be business and rest residential consumers who would like to have this kind of services available to them for fast streaming and virtual reality and simultaneously used by multiple devices. So, um, yeah, also, you know, as Kurt mentioned, there are also some challenges. So I'm going to turn over to Julie to talk about potential challenges, since this is a complex topic. Yeah, Shaneen only wanted to cover the benefits and wanted me to cover the cons. <laughs> so, um, no, I'm teasing. But um, basically, what is micro-trenching? So we, um, we talked to two other communities that have worked with Google. Um, what you're seeing are images from the city of San Antonio, Texas. We also talked to Taylorsville, uh, Utah, which is a suburb of Salt Lake City, and basically, you're, you're going from traditional trenching, which is feet, to now inches. So really has the promise of having lower impacts to our infrastructure. Um, and here you see that this is um, one of the tools that they use, the pieces of equipment where they're um, cutting into the actual roadway. I should also add, if there are more technical questions, my wingmen are John Starbard and John, Star, uh, John um, Burkhalter, who are waiting in the wings in case there are um, more detailed questions about this technology and how this would impact the infrastructure. 
Um, here, again, you're seeing very small cuts in, um, in the roadway, and, um, and then you see how they seal, um, seal the roadway once they've cut into it. And, and then I think this is a pretty handy visual on, well, how does it connect to the home? And this just, again, shows you how it ideally, we're talking the seam between the curb and the overlay, the street overlay, that's where we would put it. However, we know that not in all cases will that be the best location. Um, so we do certainly have some um, concerns, and I'm realizing this is not the slide deck. Uh, well, maybe it is. Um, we do have some concerns. Um, obviously, a question you're going to ask is, well, how does this impact our PCI? The city, the residents, the taxpayers have put considerable investment into the street PCI. We have a rating of uh, around 70%. So would this impact it? It would have some, but in the communities we talked to, it was really limited, limited PCI degradation in their view. Um, and it probably, I think the best example is it looks like crack seal. It doesn't look like a trench. You know, it looks like you're crack sealing. Um, but here's an example where um, obviously Google Fiber had to be a few feet away from that catch basin. So th this is something we'd need to look at um, if we uh, embarked on this. So maintaining the infrastructure, ensuring that the um, micro-trenching doesn't conflict with our, um, our storm lines, our utilities, and that sort of thing. Um, so additionally here, we would um, want to look at, again, um, how would this, um, how would we look at this when we're looking at frontage improvements? Again, overlays, typically um, when the city is doing overlays, we work with our utilities in advance. They come in before we do the overlay and um, they take care of that before we do the overlay. So we just have, we'd have another utility, if, almost like a, a utility provider that we'd have to coordinate with before we do the overlay. Um, so uh, just want to um, wrap it up there and see if you had any questions, any additional things we should explore. Um, I, I should note that if the um, council would like us to explore this, we, we do think um, we would use our existing staff to do that, but maybe some outside legal counsel to help us on any agreement. I also should add all those staff concerns, um, questions that we would have. Obviously, Google would need to address that in any any agreement. So, Great. who wants to get started, Toby or Councilmember Nixon? Sorry, Toby. <laughs> yeah, we're back to the old way. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> So the main question I had was, uh, I think everybody knows, we do have a few private streets in Kirkland. We have some gated subdivisions and we have some like areas up on Finn Hill where the street is like a separate lot that everybody kind of jointly owns or something like that. Um, and in many cases, those are dirt roads. Uh, do we know if Google intends to run the fiber on those private rights away or uh, are they willing to look at doing that? It's a good question. Um, 
I know at I know that they would like to build out the entire network in the city. So how how they would work with private private entities, we didn't ask, but I think that's a great question. We can Yeah, I'm curious. It's like yeah. to know if they thought about that, if they did that in San Antonio or Taylorsville, that kind of Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Yep. Thanks. Mm-hmm. I mean, in general, what they've said is once they have it in the street, they'd be talking to each residence or building if they wanted a connection and they are proposing it, they would pay for that connection. So this is sort of like a giant version of that where they go up the private road and create the connection. So my guess is they would probably say yes, but it's definitely something to ask them. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Mayor Black. Thanks, Madam Mayor. Uh, first of all, thanks for the presentation. And uh, I do, I guess to answer the first question, I do think this is something worth exploring. I do have a couple of concerns. So um, first is the information we currently have available to us about the the benefits as perceived by our cons the consumers in the city, the residents and and business owners. Um, so I would I, I, well, I'll just list off the the next one I'm going to ask about is a, sort of the accessibility of this service to residents of multifamily housing. I want to explore that a little bit and then. Um, uh, I do want to understand a little bit better the negative uh, effects on public works and sort of development projects uh, that impact the streets. And then um, I have a, a highly specific question about the reliability of being able to locate uh, fiber trenches when we're doing utility locations. So first of all, on the benefits to consumers, I think that's, you know, what I guess I would recommend is that we, if we're going to explore this further, that we're pulling together probably not a full Trek public outreach, but some kind of um, effort to find out from a few key stakeholders, some residents and business owners. Um, so I, I, I'm tying into my next comment, some multifamily property owners, um, and just find out whether when they hear about this, they're like, yeah, great, no brainer, more competition, um, higher speeds, um, um, or if, you know, or if the reaction is kind of like, meh, and then we're looking at, you know, some of the costs and burdens and impacts on our public works. Um, so I mentioned access by residents of multifamily housing. I just don't have a very good sense. I guess what I would say is I think something like 47% of our residents live in multifamily housing. Um, I have a sense that some significant percentage of our residents who are sort of underserved in this capacity that were sort of highlighted in our memo with respect to equity inclusion, inclusion, live in um, multifamily housing in Kirkland. And I just don't have a, a very good sense of whether the owners of those properties are going to, even though it's free connection, whether they're going to opt to do the free connection or not. Because um, if, 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 if we were to talk to multifamily housing property owners and to find out that this is really not an option they're going to exercise, mm -hmm. then we're sort of missing a, a pretty significant number of our of the underserved residents that we're, that we're trying to serve with the equity component. I know that's not the only factor to be considered, but it's one factor that we've highlighted in the memo. We're kinda, we may actually miss that goal and not realize it. Uh, so I'd like to find out a little bit more about that. Um, and then um, I I, I'm trying to envision whether we're doing trenching or whether a developer comes to us and gets a permit to do trenching because they're, you know, connecting a, 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 a bigger diameter sewer line to our sewer main, what happens, presumably they're able to locate that fiber uh, 10 years from now, um, reliably, 
Yeah, and they, um, Google did say that we would get ads built, and of course now, um, I mean, we would, of course, put it in our GIS as a layer, mm -hmm. so we would know where the fiber is laid. Yeah, okay. And then I just picture entrenching out there, and I don't know what you're going to do with a fiber cable that's just two inches right. under the surface of the of the asphalt, um, and how you're going to do the work. I'm I'm assuming our our crews and the crews that are hired by developers and whatnot are pretty sophisticated that kind of thing. But it does seem like that could be a bigger burden than imagined. And then the other thing I'm imagining is a lot of times when with different projects we do go and resurface the pavement and we mill up. Like, I don't kind know, of. probably an inch or two or more of the surface. And I'm imagining now fiber running on both sides of the that road. When we go to mill that up, if I have a sense, but I don't know, that we're going to be just tearing up a ton of fiber. Great questions we'd have to sort out. Okay. Yep. Mm -hmm. So I'd like, to, I'd like to understand that a little bit better. And I think you answered my last question, which was I wanted to know uh, that we'll have at least some way to reliably locate the fiber mm -hmm. and that I guess also our homeowners and developers and builders will also be able to reliably locate fiber. And I think there are third-party loca utility location services out there that if they're not looking at our GIS maps that they're going to somehow be able to reliably. Otherwise, we're going to have strike. You know, it seems like we're going to have potential strikes all over the city. Yeah, and this is something that was interesting, too, when we talked to the um, municipalities. Um, they said that they had less utility conflicts mm. using this technology. It just didn't compared to traditional trenching you would even though you might require potholing you miss it you just miss it and they they just said it just was less of an issue oh, okay yeah i'd like to just understand that better and with that I, okay. that was it thank you councilmember curtis thank you um okay so um i do want to move forward with exploring this with caution and that I don't want to invest a ton of time and then Google decide that Kirkland is not the partner that they want. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> and, you know, and, and same with personal delivery devices. You know, Amazon walked away and we, it, 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 I believe that investment is worthwhile because other companies will come forward. But I'm a little cautious moving forward with this. And you said that, um, you believe that we can do this work with in-house staff. I saw that San Antonio had a full-time person on staff to support this. Was this after the installation or during the installation? During. Now, okay. bear in mind, they have 14,000 miles yes. of roadway. Yes. 4,000, sorry. And then I think Google laid already 3,000 miles of that. So there was a lot for them to, to do. But... Um, well, I think we would explore that yes. with, I would explore that with development services to see, I mean, do we need a dedicated inspector? Exactly. I think that's a and good that's question. And that's where my concern, and how would we pay for that? Absolutely. And yeah. Okay. Just to address and, some and, of that. And, yeah, I just wanted to clarify on that. What we were saying about the resource would be to explore it further, but yes. if we chose to do it and we executed a franchise agreement as an example, what we'd look at is, would we need additional resources and would that be paid for by the franchise agreement? Right. So we didn't mean that to apply to if we're actually implementing. We meant it to apply to as we, you know, assess the next round. We don't think we need additional staff for that. Yeah, 
And that's one of my. That's a good clarification. Thank you. And then I appreciate uh, Councilmember Black's comments about multifamily. I definitely, if we move forward with this, the low, the benefit to our low-income residents are is hugely important. And the federal program, frankly, is is not much money. So I would like to see something more robust. And then my other just small comment is, it's not very pretty. And I wonder about um, the impacts on bike riders and other people using those lanes. So thank you. Okay. Thank you. Councilmember Pascal. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, so when I was reading this, my first reaction was, wow, this sounds like an exciting opportunity. <laughs> uh, and, and it still is. Uh, I, I guess I have some questions. Uh, first, with are the existing providers today, my understanding is we have Comcast that provides fiber cable, and then we have Zipli, which used to be Verizon and used to be something else before that. And uh, are there other providers that do this same thing? Is Google essentially the third, would be the third major provider in Kirkland, or do I, am I thinking about that incorrectly? I, do you know the answer to that? I think it would be the third, but Shanine, do you? It yeah, I, I think for the fibers. Or maybe John um, Starbard. Yeah, John probably know as well. Uh, so I think it's the Zipply uh, is doing the fiber. If we're talking about uh, yeah. fiber. fiber, yeah, the rest of is more like a cable. Uh, so yeah. for the it's fiber. Still high speed broadband internet access. Right, yeah. right, exactly. Okay. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, so I mean, I think definitely it seems like in a technology rich area um, having a third <laughs> provider you know would make make a lot of sense uh, provide uh, improved competition and so forth for folks I d I seem to remember when when I lived up in Finn Hill that there's micro trenching occurring like it occurred for a couple years when Verizon came in and installed all their fiber um, and that was am I remember am I dating myself or um, I asked John um, Burkhalter this because um, he's in, been in development services a long time and John I don't think you recall um, might have been before annexation he's there yeah maybe okay. John <laughs> yeah I did I did not recall that yeah. happening okay in, in our in our tenure as being part of the city of it was I mean it was it was disruptive I remember because they would go you know, from corridor to corridor each week, you know, each neighborhood street. And, you know, it would take, a, you know, a good few days to get down the neighborhood street. But, I mean, it it didn't seem like overly burdensome or impactful. On, on and it wasn't a traditional trench, you think? It no, was it was, yeah, it was in and out pretty quick. Oh. And they're installing the fiber. Okay. Which which was great because then all the everyone had access to that. Um, one of the other questions is, would they are is there intent to install to uh, the full city? Uh, is that is that is that what they've said? They're not just kind of cherry picking <laughs> certain more affluent neighborhoods or anything like that. No, they would like to commit to installing for the full city. Yeah, that would be something that I yeah I would want to make sure there's a commitment. Mm -hmm. um, and then talked about the micro trenching along the curb line and then there's the the connection to the actual properties mm -hmm. buildings how does that occur so if there's sidewalks and stuff are there impacts to our our sidewalks or other infrastructure between where the micro trenching is and where the where the property or the building is? that's right they would have to have a physical fiber connection to the house right and they will have to make 
I mean, again, they're, they're, they believe in most cases it would be micro-trenching as well. Across the sidewalk. Right, across the sidewalk. They'd have to repair the sidewalk. Obviously, they'd have to uh, restore the property, you know, any disturbances to the property. But, yeah. When we met with them, they talk about a toolkit of options. Yeah. So, so they would, like, try to cut along the seam of sidewalk. Yeah. Um, panels, but they also have like a very small micro tunneling system that they use too. So they, they have a different series of ways they would get under, get over to, but it would be a, um, it would just depend on the location that they're dealing with, but they would definitely be having an impact across, but they commit to repairing that. Okay. Yeah. I just want to, I just don't want to forget about that aspect and making sure we have that covered. Um, this, this is a really major impact. I mean, investment for Google. Uh, oh, they're they're telling us millions. Yeah, mm -hmm. tens millions. Yeah, tens, tens of millions. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So I mean, I I really see that they're they're placing a high importance on Kirkland, and I I, I would like to do what we can to to make this okay, viable. Okay, so continue option. to explore it. Yeah. Okay. Um, a couple other things. I also want to be careful that we don't treat Google differently than other providers. I don't want to have a double standard uh, where we say, hey, Google, you have to do all these things, but we don't require these things from our other providers. I don't think that that's equitable mm -hmm. uh, to other utilities. So if we're saying that they have to um, fund you know, free connections and things like that, that it just raises questions. And so how, how do we do that in a fair way? Um, when when there's other providers that provide the service and we don't we don't require that now it's one thing if we do and then Google does it too that makes sense but we don't how does that work um, and then then finally I just kind of want to say this again even though I know it's been said already is that's not layer too much regulations and burden and investment and then see this all go away so thank you. Deputy Mayor, thank you, Madam Mayor. I have a couple of things to uh, add to uh, from what my colleagues have said. Uh, first, I'm excited about this opportunity, um, and you know, f figure that we'll keep um, uh, swinging at these pitches, and we're, we're going to hit a home run with one of these. Uh, first, on the franchise fee and, and the costs, I'd like to make sure that we have a full understanding both of not just our own administrative overhead. It sounds like having a staff liaison was key to the success in other cities, but it also sounds like we're incurring some additional um, maintenance considerations and want to make sure those costs would be covered in how we structure a franchise fee. You mentioned the issues with overlays. I want to make sure that we understand how slurry seal is impacted in addition to when we have to grind down uh, our roadways. And, and then um, for the uh, franchise agreement, I, I think I recall what we've done with previous broadband providers is there was some public benefit around schools. And maybe that's the model we need to um, track in this to Councilmember Pascal's uh, feedback. Finally, um, similar to my comments when we were talking about automated delivery vehicles, I think we need to also be planning for success in in this and if Google is here first saying they want to micro trench there may be other providers too that are interested in this and we need to think about how we would deal with multiple micro trenching providers 
that said, um, I, I'm wondering if there's a way that we could structure this as an exclusive pilot for some period of time so we could learn and then adjust our franchise standards um, after that. So those are some of the things I would like to explore. Thank you. And if I if I may, so th that is actually one of the issues we want to do a little bit more legal work on. Um, basically, what are our options? And so the city has the ability to do an RFP to allow one person to microtrenching, or we could have multiple opportunities for people to microtrench, but we also would need to explore what if we decided to just do an exclusive pilot. So I think that's one of the places we said, yeah, we would need to learn a lot more about this, because it's kind of in a gray zone in the franchise agreement world, this this fiber, and so we probably want to get some outside expertise to, to help us. Um, one thing of note, just in the healthy competition, we did, as staff receive a letter from Comcast today saying they're going to be watching this presentation carefully, and they might be interested in micro-trenching as well. So uh, just the conversation itself is definitely getting people interested. So uh, that would be one of the things we want to look at is what are our options on that. Thank you. Uh, Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, one of the benefits of going last is that my list has been significantly reduced because my smart colleagues have asked good questions. Um, so, I, I mean, I appreciate, um, Councilor Benediction, your remarks on the private streets. Um, that was one of my questions as well. And Deputy Mayor Arnold, you covered my um, question about the maintenance cost as part of the um, discussion. Um, Following up to some of uh, Councilmember Black's comments on equity, well, thank you so much for having that listed as one of the benefits. Um, I appreciate the discussion on potential reduced fee um, program as part of that. And I also appreciate seeing the Washington Broadband uh, Survey results map on there. One of the questions I had just as we um, can potentially continue to explore this is how much that, um, you know, filling in the gaps on uh, high-speed internet accessibility is is really a benefit, and, and in order to know that, we'd really need to have a better idea of where those gaps are. And looking at those maps, like there are some red dots, and I think, was it red and yellow, where there was low um, connectivity, but they're also really close to the dots that were high connectivity, so I'm having a hard time reading that. Is that just house to house? Like, I would just wanna know a little bit more about how those data were collected. Um, to get a better sense of really if there are gaps and if so where they are within our city to really understand how much of a benefit that really is or whether we're already covered already between the, um, the two service providers that already exist in our city. Um, I have to look through my notes and make sure I've checked everything off here. Uh, just We will probably have to do a little bit of more work on that, but Shawning, I don't know if you had anything you wanted to add about the dots and the distance apart and how we know where the speeds are and the gaps are. Yeah, those um, actually, this is the Washington State's uh, broadband office. They did kind of survey. It's a self-reported. So uh, I would say it might depend. So sometimes even though you have a high speed available, but they might choose to subscribe lower speed, maybe incoming issue, uh, income issue or something. So that is it's kind of a little bit com complex, like why the you know, you're seeing the people, similar area, some people, you know, has much higher speed versus some people has a very low speed. So that could be income related. So I, I think you had a really good question to really, you know, to further look into it, to dig a little bit deeper, you know, why is that? So. Yeah, that's um, a really, thank you. That's yeah. really helpful because there could be, mm -hmm. you know, 
countless variables as to why that might be. It could be time of day, depending on you know how many points of data they needed to report. It's interesting just to know that it's self-report. That's really helpful. And it could be, yeah. like you said, they're just choosing or are constricted by the, um, the options and what they can afford as far as options. And maybe this wouldn't change that, right? And so mm -hmm. um, that's really useful. Um, also, following, following up on Councilmember Pascal's um, comments about um, micro-trenching potentially having happened in the past in Fin Hill, if we, when we do look into that, it'd be really helpful to know if that's impacted the conditions of the roads, um, of the streets, and of any sidewalks, if that was, if we could kind of learn how, if, if that did happen before, how that was done, because that was one of the things I know we just don't have a lot of information on are the long-term impacts of something like this um, and the impacts on maintenance costs. So that would be helpful to look into. And I agree with the rest of the feedback I've heard here tonight in that I'm interested in cautiously pursuing this uh, just to learn a little bit more and explore some more of the opportunities and um, potential drawbacks as well. Thank you. Thank you. And I'll throw my voice behind cautiously proceeding as well. Um, the questions that I have is, one of it is just to understand the rollout. Are they going to pre-subscribe people so that they can connect to houses along the way? Or are they going to go back and make cuts for everybody who comes on board? Um, yeah, I, I think that, I, Shawnee, can you answer that? I think they wanted to have it installed first before they market, but maybe we need to follow up on that. Yeah, we need to follow up. Okay. Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. And, and the other comment that I would make is we've got Amazon coming on board to put 5,000 satellites in the air to provide another level of service um, starting in, what, 2025. Um, so, so along the lines of healthy competitiveness, I think they're all putting a whole lot of money <laughs> into being a winner. And it, it will be interesting to see how this thing rolls out. Um, but I am interested in hearing more about potential public benefit, um, particularly to underserved and, and um, low-income individuals. And with that, I believe we're done with this. Oops, I'm sorry, Councilmember Black. Sorry, uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. I did have um, a follow-up question um, from some of the discussion uh, that my colleagues had. Um, so, and this might be a benefit I mean, certainly, I hope it's a benefit to me and my colleagues, but hopefully it's a benefit to the public who might be listening. And also, I guess if Comcast is listening to it, it might be benefit them as well. I understood from the memo that when it came to two, two aspects of the proposal, um, the, free, the, the free connection to uh, residents who choose to use the service and the um, potential for a low-income monthly rate for uh, residents who are low income. Um, those were both proposals made by Google. Correct. Th those Correct. aren't, those aren't um, demands that the city no, has, that, has made. That's what Google has put in their proposal to us. Okay, perfect. That's all I wanted to understand. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Nixon. Yeah, a couple of additional questions came to mind for me as we went through. Um, first, I think we have a third uh, terrestrial provider, and that would be wave broadband, but I'm not sure how much of the city they cover. Um, but, but then we have satellite. We just mentioned Kuiper and Starlink, and we have 5G like Verizon and T-Mobile and AT&T. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, they have a visible footprint in the city as well. I would be really interested if we could put it together to see 
what all those coverages are in the city, the 5G, the, the uh, satellite, all the different um, coax or, or fiber providers, and, and combine those to see where the gaps are. And I'd also be really interested to um, get information on what the cost of those services are um, in order to compare them. Because ultimately, we're going to have to make a decision whether we're already set or if we need more. Um, the other thing that came to mind as we were talking was um, this is a huge project. It has a, a huge scale. And would an EIS be necessary? Uh, when you start thinking about the extent to which you're disrupting pavement surfaces all over the city and the impact that might have on uh, streams, for example. Um, just a question. I'm not saying it would be. I just don't know what, how big a project like this becomes before you have to do an EIS. Uh, of course, we don't do it on like an individual trenching project. But citywide, I just don't know who makes that decision. I guess it's us. We, we can say it's significant or not significant, right? Yeah, that's a great question. We'll definitely want to yeah. look into that. I don't know if Adam is on the line. He wasn't scheduled to be on this one, but if he's there, maybe he has a thought on that. I thought I switched. Oops. He's here. <laughs> Sorry, I can't. Good evening, Council. I keep uh, pressing the wrong button. Um, yeah, that's. I think that's about right. It's a decision that we would make. We would um, want to do, perhaps as an initial step, just some sort of an environmental checklist to see what potential impacts could result from um, the, the project overall. And if there are significant um, and non-mitigable impacts that could trend us in the direction of an EIS. I think just on the face of it, it's hard to imagine that we want to do a full-blown EIS um, for something like this, but we could. And there might be sort of a lesser SEPA analysis that we could do as well, like a, um, a mitigated declaration. Thank you. Yep. Okay, I think that's it. All right. So thank you very much, Julie. Thank you. I'm sure you'll see us in the future. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Council. Okay, so that takes us to item B, the Northeast 85th Street Station Area Plan Phase 2 Briefing. All right, uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. So we wanted to get a chance to check in with the council on where we are with phase two of the stationary plan. Uh, we had a, a planning commission public hearing and also there's been a lot of work going on at the planning commission. So I believe we're also gonna be joined by Angela Rosman, who's the chair of the planning commission tonight. Uh, but so this is a check-in and just to get council questions and observations as we move forward, there's no action for the council tonight, which is why it's the study session. And I believe our tour guide is gonna be Allison Zyke, our deputy planning and building director. Thank you, and um, good evening, Mayor Sweet, uh, Deputy Mayor Arnold, and council members. Um, as Kurt mentioned, uh, we have a, a brief briefing for you tonight, but it's been a while since we've gotten to come and talk to you about the station area, so we're excited to update you. Um, tonight, we're just going to go really quickly um, to remind you what we've adopted so far and what's left. We're going to go over the what's all is included in the proposed code amendments that make up phase two. Um, and we're going to give you an update on where we're at on affordable housing requirements in the station area. Um, and then I'll turn it over to Chair Rosman to give you an update from the Planning Commission hearing last week. Um, in addition to myself, um, we have Adam and um, Scott Guder, our senior planner, on the line to help answer any council questions. So with that, I'll jump right in. I'm going to try to keep this under 15 minutes for you. 
Um, so just to remind you what we have left, I'm going to focus on that rather than what we've already done, which is quite a bit of work um, left to do to implement the station area plan is to adopt the planned action ordinance and Council has already hold, held a public hearing on that piece. Um, what we're going to talk about more tonight are the two pieces here, the phase two form based code. So that will be the zoning that implements the station area vision and goals, and then the rezones for phase two. So that will actually apply the form based code to specific parcels in the station area. I want to take just a quick moment to remind Council of the vision you adopted for the station area, and that is to see it as a thriving transit-oriented new walkable district with high-tech and family wage jobs, plentiful affordable housing, sustainable buildings, park amenities, and commercial and retail services. So as I mentioned, phase two is really all about implementing the goals and policies that you've already adopted back in June of 2022. Um, and we focused a lot on how the community can receive the benefits of growth um, as the stationary redevelops in the future. Um, within the stationary plan, we did adopt an urban design framework made up of the components you see on the screen. Um, and we're carrying that through into the form-based code in phase two that we're gonna talk about in a little more detail. Um, so quickly to go over what the decisions were under consideration by Planning Commission at their hearing last week on Thursday. Um, so really three main things were in front of the Planning Commission that we received public testimony on. That's the zoning code amendments. So that's the chapter of the zoning code that includes the station area form-based code. Um, the legislative rezone, so those zoning map amendments to actually apply the zoning to specific parcels, and then a small Kirkland Municipal Code amendment that we'll go over in more detail. Um, we worked with Planning Commission quite extensively over the fall um, through study sessions with them to get direction and finalize our development of the draft form-based code that was considered at the hearing last week. Um, and I tried to highlight here some of the, the big kind of um, pieces that Planning Commission talked about the most, um, where they really focused a lot of their work um, and they thought through really carefully um, trying to make sure we got these right. So just a few that I'll highlight for you is we really took a good look at the transitions across the station area. Um, so how areas that had different height allowances, how those flowed into the next. Um, we talked a lot specifically about what is a transition and how that fits together. We'll talk about that in a few slides here. Um, and then on incentive zoning, um, Planning Commission uh, has talked about affordable housing in the phase two districts and um, has, has had that as one of their primary focuses and goals for the station area. Um, and they also talked about potentially creating a new um, incentive amenity in the zoning. And we'll talk about that in more detail in a little bit. We wanted to share with council what we heard at the public hearing last week. Um, and so there, there was written testimony that we received both before we published the hearing packet and then afterwards as well. Uh, we've transmitted all that to the council in a bundle um, for your convenience now via email. Um, for the actual public hearing last week, we had three speakers um, speak to the Planning Commission and provide testimony. Um, what we heard from those speakers, um, there was one request to add an additional parcel into the Urban Flex District, so that's in the existing Norkirk Light Industrial Area. Um, we heard some concerns that Phase 2 might not be fully addressing some of the, um, the heights that were approved in Phase 1. 
also some concern that um, some of the phase two components um, haven't been discussed enough. Um, so for example, some of those were allowing residential uses in the urban flex district, um, some of the um, changes on 120th Avenue, um, and then some of the areas that are included to be rezoned in the Moss Bay neighborhood. Um, we heard concerns about uh, lack of bus ridership. So um, talking more about how the station area will function um, with the forthcoming bus rapid transit service in the station area, um, and then about pedestrian safety as well. I did wanna mention, even though it was not part of the public hearing that we did have several people um, attend the planning commission meeting um, that spoke specifically about affordable housing in the station area. And they did that through the general items from the audience portion of the meeting. I think it's safe to say that in general, people agree that affordable housing should be a priority in the station area. Um, and so we heard um, some speakers mention that 10%, a 10% inclusionary requirement wouldn't be enough. Others concerned that 20% and upwards would be too much. Um, but as I mentioned, general support for affordable housing in the station area, um, and also some offers to collaborate and partner with the city to make sure we get the requirements for affordable housing right. And so uh, now I'm going to go through just each of the three main items that Planning Commission was considering at their hearing last week. So the first are the zoning code amendments. So if in the zoning code amendments, what we're doing, big picture, is adopting development standards for the uh, other three station area districts that weren't included in phase one. And I'm going to walk through those one by one. So just to remind you, commercial mixed use here towards the center, that's already adopted. That was adopted in phase one. The districts that we're developing development standards for in phase two include the urban flex district. So that's over in that Norkirk light industrial area. The civic mixed use district that's made up entirely of the Lake Washington High School site. And then also the neighborhood mixed use district. So this covers most of the area and it has variable heights across the district. In addition to implementing the form-based code for the station area, the proposed zoning code amendments also um, include a number of administrative uh, amendments. So those cleanup definitions make sure that the station area chapter works well with the other zoning code chapters. And so we wanted to take a moment to just step through a couple areas that we talked about very specifically as part of that broader package of station area um, zoning code amendments. And the first was a slight change to the boundary of the neighborhood mixed use district. So this was um, directed uh, by council for staff to study at one of your previous meetings. Um, staff studied it, ended up recommending it to planning commission and planning commission did vote to include it in their recommendation to you. And that item is specifically to include a few more parcels in the neighborhood mixed use district. So what we did was take a look at existing uh, multifamily residential zones that were adjacent to the boundary of the neighborhood mixed use district in South Rose Hill. So there were two locations and you can see a zoom, a zoom in of them over here on the left. Um, so the proposal, the staff recommendation was to go ahead and include those uh, parcels within the dotted lines in the neighborhood mixed use district at an allowed height, uh, maximum height of 65 feet with a base height of 40 feet. Planning Commission did pick up that recommendation. Um, additionally, one of the items Planning Commission had asked staff to look at a little more closely 
was whether or not it was appropriate on this specific site here to go up to 85 feet where the regulating plan had previously shown it at 75 feet. We did go ahead and recommend uh, that be um, included at 85 feet to be consistent with the surrounding parcels and planning commission did vote to recommend that to you. So those are a couple changes from the last time you've seen the regulating plan. The second item um, that Planning Commission has spent a lot of time on is the transition standards and making sure that we get those right as we do have uh, new heights introduced in the station area zoning. Um, and where we got to on that was really establishing that there's kind of two different degrees of height transitions in the station area. Um, and so we developed two different transition types, a type A and type B. Type A being uh, where the maximum allowed height between parcels, uh, if that maximum allowed height difference is greater or 30 feet or greater, that's a type A transition. And that would, uh, the type A transition would be where the height difference is between 30 and 50 feet. When we get to areas where the maximum allowed height difference is greater than 50 feet, we have a type B transition. We're gonna go over here what, what the difference is between those. Um, we've worked a lot with Planning Commission looking at a lot of different examples to see how uh, we could accomplish a successful transition um, through a variety of methods. Um, also looking at, and one of the big things we talked about was you know, there's there's the the idea that height should be mitigating massing to neighboring parcels, but also that if we require too aggressive of a transition standard or require people to carve out too much space on upper floors, we're going to start um, impacting what a feasible floor plate is on those upper floors, um, which then um, might render some of those uh, just kind of undevelopable to start with. Um, and then that impact starts impacting uh, the potential community benefits we can receive um, from the redevelopment we're hoping happens here. So just to tell you where we landed on the transition types for that type A, so where the height difference is 30 feet or greater, but still less than 50 feet, um, we're requiring a 25 uh, degree sky exposure plane. So. The transitions all require a landscape buffer and then in addition to that would require that there's a, uh, a sky exposure plane angled away from the impacted parcel and that would require a building as it gets taller to step back further from the shared property line. And then when we got to the transition type B, um, so that's where the height differences are 50, uh, greater than 50 feet, excuse me, and those areas are in dashed lines on your screen. Um, and what Planning Commission landed on there was recommending a slightly more aggressive uh, sky exposure plane, one that's 30 degrees. And as I mentioned, we, we did a lot of modeling um, and Planning Commission looked at a lot of different iterations of this to figure out what felt right. Uh, parking standards, and I think this is the last specific piece of the zoning code we wanted to discuss with you. Um, Planning Commission discuss, has discussed parking quite a bit. Um, here, um, in the table, you can see what the staff recommendations were for parking. Uh, these are generally lower than the parking ratios citywide, and these are minimum required parking. Um, Planning Commission had a, a pretty robust discussion uh, in their deliberations, and they did end up um, recommending a slightly lower parking uh, ratios 
for a couple items, one for residential suites, and then another um, was that Planning Commission has recommended uh, removing minimum parking requirements for affordable units. Oh, sorry, there's one more specific item in the zoning code, and that's talking about incentive zoning. So council adopted an incentive zoning program for commercial uses in phase one. Um, and that incentive zoning program was focused on the community benefits that we identified through the outreach we conducted for the station area plan. And so the incentive program today as adopted in phase one includes amenities. So these are amenities that a developer could provide in exchange for being able to build above the base height identified for the zone. So it's how they earn their way up to the maximum allowed height for the district. Um, the amenities that we've adopted in phase one include potential amenities for housing through a payment, um, sustainability, schools, parks, and mobility. Planning Commission was interested in, and had several discussions about the idea that it was very important that the station area include a grocery store long term and that we not lose grocery stores um, that don't get then rebuilt. Um, and so as a result, they asked staff to draft up an option that would incentivize a grocery store and include it in the incentive zoning program. Um, staff draft, drafted up a pretty uh, an amenity for a grocery store that's pretty limited in scope, meaning that it, it would have to be a very a, a grocery store of significant size, so at least 20,000 square feet. And then in addition to that, um, staff felt that the market in the station area is already going to be there for grocery stores. It's likely not something that we're going to have to incentivize in order to maintain in the station area. So given that, um, we did draft that the grocery store should only be allowed to be used as an incentive if there's no other grocery stores within one half mile. So right now, I don't think there's a parcel in the station area that would actually be able to use a grocery store as uh, an amenity um, for the incentive program. Um, but we did draft it just in case grocery stores ever go away. Um, there would be an incentive there for people to develop a grocery store in the future. Um, and Planning Commission did include that in their recommendation to City Council. And lastly, just the other things, um, zoning code amendments that Planning Commission has recommended to Council um, were recommended as proposed by staff and as drafted in that Planning Commission hearing packet. Those include several miscellaneous code amendments, again, to make sure that the station area zoning is working well with the other chapters of the zoning code. And then also, because the station area zoning will replace several Rose Hill Business District zones, there's several sections of the zoning code where we'll need to remove references to the Rose Hill Business District zones. The second piece, and it's going to be quicker from here on out, um, the second piece that Planning Commission considered at their hearing last week were the rezones. Um, so those included the parcels west of 405 in the Urban Flex and Neighborhood Mixed Use District. Um, the parcels in South Rose Hill, including those um, additional parcels that we talked about earlier, and then parcels in North Rose Hill. And those were recommended by Planning Commission. And then lastly, um, there's a municipal code amendment that was proposed by staff, and that was to expand the application of the multifamily tax exemption into the urban flex district since part of the urban flex district standards would allow residential uses on upper floors only. So in order to be able to apply for MFTE, um, the parcels would have to be within one of these residential targeted areas, 
the central Kirkland residential targeted area today does not include the, the, the Norkirk area, the light industrial area. And so the recommended amendment here would be to simply expand the boundary to include those parcels that would, that would uh, allow residential uses in the future. So that uh, concludes what was heard and considered at the Planning Commission hearing. Staff did want to briefly go over where we're at on affordable housing with Council tonight. And so staff has been working with ARCH to develop a joint recommendation for what the requirements should be for affordable housing in the station area. Um, and right now, as, as Council well knows, uh, in most locations citywide, uh, Kirkland currently has a 10% inclusionary requirement, meaning 10% of new units have to be affordable units. Our definition of affordable in Kirkland is, for renters is that um, those units are available to people or households making uh, no more than 50% of the average median income for the county. And we've highlighted what that is here. These are based on King County numbers. Um, for owned units, they would need to be affordable to households making uh, no more than 80% of the King County uh, median income. And so working with ARCH, um, and ARCH utilized information that was collected and analyzed in the fiscal impact and community benefits analysis that we worked on with a pretty robust consultant team in 2021. They also worked in um, economic work from that informed the phase one incentive zoning program. Um, and what ARCH came up with was the maximum base requirements that could potentially be supported by the value of the up zones in the station area. Um, and so it varies a bit based on what the maximum height allowed is or what the development capacity of each zone is. Um, but ARCH found that um, for parcels that uh, go up to 65 feet potentially, um, those could support more than the 10% um, affordable housing requirement or inclusionary requirement, potentially up to 15%. Um, and for parcels that allow 65 feet and greater, um, those could potentially support an inclusionary requirement of 20 to 25%. There's a couple different ways that we could put a program together using those um, inclusionary requirements. Um, the first option would be simply to apply that inclusionary requirement to all new residential units. So just uh, regardless of the base height or maximum allowed height in these districts. The second option could set up a um, maintain the 10% inclusionary requirement for development up to the base height and then require a higher inclusionary requirement to reach the maximum allowed height. So for units above the base. So those are a couple different ways that the program could be um, put together. And then um, lastly, um, one of the other options uh, for the affordable housing requirements in the station area could be to implement some type of sliding scale where uh, developers could provide units that are kind of at a higher level of affordability or a more shallow level of affordability. So perhaps to households making up to 60 or 80% for, for rental units, um, but that as the units are provided at a more shallow level of affordability, the minimum amount required would, would go up accordingly. So kind of that sliding scale idea. So those, um, those items haven't been um, discussed with Planning Commission yet. They were not part of the public hearing last week.
Lastly, just next steps um, and where we're at. So we're here tonight briefing um, City Council. Um, we have completed pretty much um, all the phase two form-based code development and we have a planning commission recommendation on that. So everything but the affordable housing requirements. Um, per planning commission's direction last week, uh, we're going to keep working on the affordable housing requirements, which will include um, more work with ARCH and also additional stakeholder engagement. Um, and in addition to that, Arch has secured uh, a consultant as well that will be helping um, make sure we ground truth all the numbers and work on that stakeholder engagement jointly. Um, so what we're looking at right now is taking this back to Planning Commission for a study session. And then I believe we'll need to do another public hearing for the affordable housing requirements. We're looking at going back to Planning Commission for a study session on April 27th tentatively. Um, and that would put us potentially into uh, May uh, or potentially early June for council adoption. And with that, I will hand it over to Chair Rosman uh, for any updates. Just want to see if council has any questions on that before we. Council, you want questions now, or do you want to hear from Chair Rosman first? Let's let's hear from and <clears throat> Chair Rosman. Where'd you go? Uh I'm back. For some reason, all of my backgrounds are gone. So you're going to get my wall instead. Um, good evening, everyone. And I just want to start by saying thank you to Allison and Scott and all of staff because they've worked really, really hard on the station area over the last couple of years. We all have. And um, we, I think, all just want to make sure that we're getting this stuff right. So Allison did a good job recapping where we're at. Um, I just do want to say a little bit more on some of that stuff, specifically the affordable housing piece that we chose at the beginning of the meeting to um, pull out of the rest of the station area discussion, because we felt that we really need to do a good job and a deep dive on the affordable housing piece. You know, Kirkland prides itself on being a data-driven city and um, as Allison just brought up, Arch just got a consultant to talk about these numbers, and we felt that we could not um, have a fair conversation until we actually had a um, robust um, public process, stakeholder process, to make sure that it's really actually doable. You know, there are folks that are building in the station area plan, and I think it's really important to hear from them to make sure what we're doing actually works out. I, I do want to remind folks that, you know, Portland, Oregon implemented a 15% inclusionary zoning at 80% five years ago, and it cut permits the next year by 93%. And that greater Portland area is still really struggling from that, including the fact that Vancouver, Washington has some of the highest rent growth for the entire state. Um, as you all know, affordable housing is my day job space as well. So um, something I'm very, very passionate and focused on. And I do also want to bring up that, you know, there is a state bill that's gone through the House and is partway through the Senate that was um, requested by the um, Association of Public Housing Authorities who, you know, build and own long-term affordable housing to up the um, percentage from 50% to 80% AMI rebenchmarking it there because 
they have not been able to do any deals with private partners because the financing doesn't work. So my biggest concern, and it was shared by the planning commission, was that, you know, our biggest fear is that five years from now, we don't see any development in the station area plan because we got these numbers wrong. We, we think that affordable housing is one of the biggest pieces of the station area, and we want to make sure that it can get somewhere that's doable. Since our meeting, I have had a meeting with um, some of the folks from the local affordable housing coalition who spoke at the meeting, and I have another one following up with um, some of the developers that are have parcels either in the station area plan or some of our regular um, developers in the city to see, you know, what is reasonable and to look at pro formas to make sure that we do have that, you know, specific data showing whether or not this stuff can be financed. Um, so, you know, as a planning commission, we've stated that this is really our big focus and we just want to spend the time to make sure we get it right. And then on parking, we were, I'm really proud that we were able to get to this um, final uh, vote to recommend zero parking minimums for affordable housing. You know, when a parking stall goes for $80,000 or more, when we can right size parking, it really, really does help the affordable housing discussion. Um, and I do just wanna make a note on the residential suites that, um, with all of the parking percentages in the station area plan, even for the non-affordable housing from studios and on up, um, that we made sure that the station area plan is not higher than anywhere else in the city. And so putting residential suites at 50% just um, puts it back in line with the rest of the city as far as that is concerned. Um, and then on the grocery store, like Allison said, you know, we hope that there doesn't need to be an incentive there. Hopefully that Safeway or um, another site is just there automatically. This we kind of saw as insurance that if for whatever reason it went away, we didn't end up with, um, you know, a mini food desert in the stationary plan because that's absolutely not how you get a 10 minute walkable community where people can, you know, live and shop and play all in the same area. Um, and I think that's it for now. And I'm here for any questions anyone might have. Council, any questions for Ms. Rosman? Thank you very much for your report, Angela. You can stay on and we'll go to general discussion, I think. Allison, are you done? Do you have more pre presentation? I am all done with the presentation, Madam Mayor. Okay. Then, uh, Councilmember Black will start us off. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I don't have a lot. Um, I do want to thank the uh, uh, Chair Rosman did a nice job of thanking the staff. Um, I want to make sure the council thanks the Planning Commission uh, for all the hard work that it's done over the last couple of years on the station area planning process and including um, all the work that was done just recently on this phase two step. Uh, and I really appreciate the recommendations and I really like where uh, for the most part, I like where we're at. I think the the two areas um, where I probably still have questions are the two that the where the um, well at least one where the planning commission still has questions. So I really appreciate that we're going to uh, do some further analysis on um, the affordable housing uh, that we have an independent uh, consultant who's going to be uh, I can't remember the the 
exact word that uh, Deputy Director Zike used, but um, you know, basically fact checking, for lack of a better term, um, sort of reality checking the the work that we're doing. Um, seems like we're already in a pretty narrow window. Um, I think we got some public hearing that 10% was not enough and 20% is too much, and that means there's only a we only have to work within a 10% window. I know that. Um, I know that the proposal um, also has a 20 to 25 percent, but I'm just saying that you know we're we're working within a pretty uh, narrow window, and uh, I'll be really interested to hear um, that further analysis and research, and appreciate the staff and the planning commission for diving into that. Um, the grocery store is still a little bit of a, a question mark for me. I don't know where I really land uh, on that, although I, I do appreciate the proposal made by um, I guess the planning commission and the staff that it would um, really only apply as an incentive if there weren't um, a grocery store of a similar size within a reasonable distance. What I'm worried about there, just uh, for my colleagues um, and also for the public, is just uh, we're, we're using it as part of incentive zoning. What I don't, it, and, and so it comes with an opportunity cost. If that's the, if that's the amenity that is selected, if, it, if we don't do the calibration just right, uh, what we end up with is a lot of 20,000 square foot uh, retail spaces in the in the in the um, in the or at least more than are necessary in the in the station area, uh, and that comes at a cost of other amenities that we're seeking to incentivize in that space, including a of course uh, affordable housing. Um, so I want to be really careful with that. I think maybe we've done a nice job um, with the guardrails uh, based on the proposal that was made uh, tonight. Um, and perhaps you know we'll have a chance. I think to correct course if we're just not getting uh, what we expect. The stationery is not going to you know redevelop um, all parcels tomorrow. It's going to be you know over the course of time. Um, so still have some concerns about the, gro the grocery store. I I, I think um, what what's being proposed makes sense uh, to me at least today. And then I appreciate the work that's being done on the affordable housing. I'll be really interested in the results of that. Thank you. Uh, Councilmember Pascal. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. So I just want to start off by saying that I thought the Planning Commission really taken has taken a, a thoughtful approach to uh, these recommendations so far. Uh, and and uh, Chair Rosman, appreciate you being here and kind of sharing a little bit more details and perspective. I think that's always really helpful. I do feel like we're on the right track, or at least the Planning Commission is on the right track. I do have a couple kind of specific things that haven't been raised. The one, the one item was around the flex district expansion of the, the study area boundary. Um, it sounds like we're gonna be looking at that and seeing whether that's possible to be done as part of this effort. I did see that there was uh, uh, an idea about if it isn't to add that into the comprehensive plan update process and I would just like to express my concern about reopening this area again. And I've expressed this in the past for those that might remember. This is of the fifth time we've looked at this uh, North Kirkland industrial area in the last eight years. And so doing it again will be the sixth time in nine years. And it's I think it's it's stressful on adjoining property owners. It's it's going through it again. Uh, you know, I think 
when do we just say, let's move on to a different area? Um, so that's my concern, uh, and I've brought that up uh, several times in the past. That's, if we can do it as part of this, this uh, effort, that's fine, but let's not reopen the whole thing again. Um, that's my opinion. Uh, the second thing is on the transition zones, and I was wondering if, you, if someone could share a map of the 85th Street uh, out to kind of, let's see, east of uh, 124th Avenue on the transition zone map. Could someone bring that up? I can sure. pull that up for you. Just give me a moment okay. here. So I'm, the question is, and then I'll kind of state my comments, what was there's there's some narrow um, locations along our study area where we're proposing 85 foot heights, um, and when I mean narrow is that it's an, there's narrow it's narrow kind of north south between 85th and then the adjoining kind of lower density zones, um, and I think the most pronounced that I see is that is that location on the north side of 85th. There in the blue, yes, exactly. Um, where you have potential 85-foot heights, and then you have essentially uh, lower-density homes abutting that uh, property, uh, and it's a it's a it's a very narrow sliver of land between 85th and 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 the lower-density areas. Um, and then you also have you also have topography working against you a little bit, and and um, where we are in the northern hemisphere. Uh, so, so on the south side, you know, perhaps you don't the the adjoining single single family or lower density uses don't have as much shading impacts, right? Because the sun is coming at you from the south, um, they still get the sun. Um, those big buildings won't block that. On the north side, that's a bit different. Right, an 85-foot 85, 85 building, and then the lower density right there, adjoining that, um, it's going to be fairly impactful to those lower density properties. Has was there discussion about that, or any kind of concerns raised, or what's been done to kind of think through that section there between 126th Avenue and 128th Avenue on the north side? I can start, and thank you for the question, um, Councilmember Pascal. Planning Commission um, spent a, a significant amount of time on that very location, um, and it's one of the, the locations where we worked up additional modeling to examine what the difference between a 30-degree sky exposure plane, a 35-degree sky exposure plane, or a 45, kind of how all those different things would impact. Um, and so a couple of things we did along the way. Uh, the first was we adjusted the methodology to determine where the sky exposure plane is measured from. And that was done specifically to address um, concerns about that topography change across parcels. Um, and in specific, specifically they're kind of the change from east to west. And so um, we adjusted the methodology to try to factor in better um, when there was a big grade difference between parcels. Um, and then I would say, and I, I'd invite, um, Adam or Scott or um, Chair Rosman to, to chime in on this, but when we started looking at those uh, larger sky exposure degrees, uh, we really started cutting away at the development capacity 
um, which is one of the major factors I think that uh, staff ended up building into our recommendation to do a 30 degree uh, plane there. I can, I can add a little bit to that. So um, as Allison said, the, uh, we did spend a lot of time on that and looked at the different options and realized that if you ended up, like if we did too much of a um, uh, percentage transition that it, we just lost so much of the development capacity and that means less affordable housing, less money toward parks, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so we felt that, you know, while it um, is a big transition, there, it takes such a big cut out of, out of those buildings that it just, it, it did not really work. And looking along there too, there are a lot of trees and, um, some natural-ish transitions. It's not going to be perfect, but um, I think that's kind of, there's there's no perfect way to transition from these taller heights to lower ones. Okay, well, um, thank you for that background. I'm glad that more time was kind of spent on that. I guess I guess the question would be, I'm, I'm just trying to put my myself in the shoes of the, owners of the properties that abut that. Um, if you're in the shade, the predominant, um, essentially all the time, uh, because of an 85 foot building, that's that's pretty impactful. So, you know, what are we doing to, to, to mitigate that? Um, and I guess the question is for me is, is that really an appropriate place to have 85 foot heights uh, because you have such a narrow uh, area? between the street and the adjoining properties and the topography and the 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 angle of the sun is is really working against you and that's kind of the one area that when i look at the map that really stands out the most um and so i so it makes sense that you guys looked at that but i'm just i'm raising that because that's a concern i have uh and then on the parking when it comes to the affordable units uh, or no parking requirements and or reduced parking uh, amounts for, for other, for residential suites. And I think Chair Rosman, you, you mentioned that we're, we're treating these areas similar to others in the city. I seem to remember that we also in the code required some demand management kind of and or a transportation management condition. So like free bus passes or other things to support uh, folks. So I'm just, I guess the question is, is are we being consistent with those same uh, requirements in this location? I don't know who can answer. I mean, I think the, the intent from the planning commission was to match what is done elsewhere. So um, I think it would make sense to have the same language in the station areas we do elsewhere. And, and council member Pascal, we have um, incorporated transportation demand management requirements into the, the form-based code for this area. So that is okay. part of the planning commission's recommendation. Um, and we did in, including pulling from the adopted um, TDM measures in the CBD district uh, where we have that 0.5 uh, residential parking requirement. And I wanna make sure I didn't miss anything because um, Scott has been really focusing in on this. No, that's precisely 
uh, correct. We we did um, take the uh, the TDM measures that came with residential suites and added it to the TDM measures for um, residential suites and broadly, you know, any development uh, where with residential units 15 or greater. Okay, good. And then, and then finally, on the affordable housing incentives, uh, yeah, but definitely support kind of moving forward with evaluating those more closely. Uh, and Chair Osman, I appreciate your examples that you shared. So there's other, I didn't take notes on those on those examples, but if you do have information you can share offline, that would, I'd, I'd love to read more about some of that. Um, uh, information. So thanks again. I know this, we're kind of getting into some of the specific details, but these details are really important. They're on the ground. We're beyond, um, you know, priorities and values, and we're really looking at kind of how this all shakes out on the ground. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, well, thank you, staff. Thank you, um, uh, Chair Rosman and to the entire Planning Commission um, who's worked really hard on this and to folks in the public who have given comment, who've written in, who um, came to the uh, public hearing. I really appreciate that. I agree with the, the general direction we're going here um, and the recommendations as well as a lot of the feedback um, I heard tonight from my colleagues. Um, I appreciate uh, the thoughtfulness that has gone into these recommendations. Um, and I appreciate a comment I heard earlier about how affordable housing is such a central piece and focus of the work that we're doing here. Um, I think I say this every time we talk about this, but I want us to be bold, but I also want us to be realistic, right? And so I'm really looking forward to, um, the, uh, to the report from ARCH and their consultants on what the recommendations are around the inclusionary zoning requirements. Um, I appreciate kind of the out-of-the-box thinking of the Planning Commission on the uh, grocery store um, incentivizing, and I'm just curious to kind of think through how that would actually play out. Like a developer would be required to provide a grocery store. What would that look like? Are they just required to provide the space? And how do we ensure that we would actually have a grocery store that would fill that space? And is there any guarantee that a grocery store would fill that space for a certain amount of time? What I don't want to have happen is that a developer, you know, builds space for a grocery store and it either doesn't get filled or it gets filled for a very short amount of time. And then we not only, um, you know, per the staff recommendation comments in the memo, uh, do we really not get the other, some of the other incentives, uh, community benefits that we could have received, but now we have kind of a, an empty space um, that's not fully being utilized. So. Um, I don't know if we have those answers tonight, but I'd be curious just to know um, what that might look like if we're um, seriously considering adding that to the list of potential community benefits. Yeah, I can I can start the answer to that, Councilmember Falcone, and thank you for the question. Um, I think similar to the incentive program that would incent um, like school or daycare space that we adopted in phase one, we would be developing agreements that would need to be signed to guarantee that that space is maintained as that use in perpetuity in exchange for the development rate. And we built some language into that that would potentially allow kind of a swapping out of that space. So if it wasn't going to be a grocery store, maybe it could be a school space in the future if it changed over or something. Um, and then how it would balance with the other amenities is that I think if someone did choose to provide the grocery store as an incentive amenity instead of something else is 
if, if it got them all the way to where they needed to be in terms of what bonus capacity they needed to earn, we might lose out on some of the other community benefits, though we did in phase one set up a structure that requires um, development to provide at least two amenities. Um, so it can't be composed of entirely one and that the any single amenity couldn't make up more than 75% of the bonus capacity they're earning. So council directed us to structure it that way, I believe, to make sure we're getting some diversity of, of amenities. Um, and so we would see if, if we did move the grocery store incentive forward, my thought is we'd include it within that same structure that wouldn't allow it to be the only um, community benefit incentive amenity provided. Thank you. Any further discussion, questions, comments? Thank you again, um, Chair Rosman, for being with us tonight and for helping us understand the hard work that the Planning Commission is doing. And thank you, Allison and Scott and Adam, for a great report and tremendous work that is happening with regard to the station area. And we will probably see you next month. With that, I think we will break for our break and we will be back at 7.30. Following a study session on a Google Fiber discussion in a Northeast 85th Street Station area phase two briefing. Um, we are at the time in our agenda when we do proclamations. Today we're going to do the w Women's History Month proclamation. I'd like my two council colleagues to join me in front of the dais along with the directors who are here representing the women of Kirkland's leaders. We're gonna come right down here. Okay. Just in case, yeah. Ladies, please. This is the first proclamation I have chosen to do myself in five years. <laughs> and because it's you. This is a proclamation of the city of Kirkland recognizing March 2023 as Women's History Month in the city of Kirkland. Whereas March has been federally recognized as Women's History Month, expanding from March 8th as International Women's Day, and is a global celebration of the social, economic, military, cultural, and political achievements of women, many of which are captured on the, websites, women's hit, on the website womenshistorymonth.gov and nationalwomenshistoryalliance.org and is a month that invites inspired action to accelerate women's equity. And whereas 2020 marked the 100-year anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution, earning women the right to vote, thanks to suffragists who tirelessly and relentlessly pursued the basic human right through activism, heightened public awareness, and transformation of government institutions, thereby exemplifying their motto of deeds, not words. And whereas the state of Washington was the 35th state to ratify the 19th Amendment in 1920, 
But thanks to the devoted efforts of Washington suffragists, our state had won statewide suffrage 10 years prior with the right for women to vote earned in 1910 and the state swearing in its first female legislators in 1913. And whereas Women's History Consortium, created by state statute, by state statute in 2005 as a women's a Washington State Historical Society led initiative is dedicated to preserving Washington's women's history and all residents of Kirkland are encouraged to visit the website at www.washingtonhistory.org research or backslash research backslash whc backslash to learn more about Washington's extraordinary women and We're very proud of our women. <laughs> Whereas the city of Kirkland recognizes and celebrates the Kirkland Women's Club, a nonprofit organization and part of the General Fun Federation of Women's Clubs for its efforts to bring together like-minded women from Kirkland and surrounding areas who strive to have a positive impact on the community and beyond through charitable works, volunteerism, community service, and political advocacy and Whereas women have been at the forefront of standing against injustice, including Princess Angeline, the oldest daughter of Chief Seattle, who remained in her home after the Duwamish people were forced off their land, and whereas the struggle for women's rights depends not just on gender, but also the intersection of other social categories that overlapped to create systems of discrimination and disadvantage. Whereas women have played a vital role in Washington government, including women like Bertha Knight Landis, who was one of the first women elected to the Seattle City Council in 1922, and the first female mayor of Seattle, elected in 1926, making her the first female mayor of a major U.S. city and... Whereas Washington Governor Dixie Lee Ray, elected in 1976, was the first female governor in Washington state and the fifth female governor in the United States. And whereas the state of Washington is represented by women serving in the United States Congress, including United States Senator Patty Murray, elected in 1993 and Washington state's first female U.S. Senator, and United States Senator Maria Cantwell, elected in 2000, and the state's second female U.S. Senator, along with six women representing the state of Washington in the U.S. House of Representatives, and whereas in 2007, Nancy Pelosi became the first female Speaker of the House of Representatives, a position for which she was reelected to her fourth term in 2021. And whereas in 2020, Kamala D. Harris was elected Vice President of the United States and is the first female Vice President in United States history, as well as being the first Asian American and the first African American Vice President in United States history. And whereas the state of Washington currently ranks sixth in the nation in the percentage of women in the state legislature in 2019, celebrating a landmark year that welcomed a female majority in the House Democratic Caucus and the state's first ever elected female House Speaker, Representative Lori Jenkins, 
And whereas the city of Kirkland is proud of the influential women within its elected body with three women council members, including Mayor Penny Sweet, Council Member Kelly Curtis, and Council Member Amy Falcone, and with the Kirkland City Council selecting a woman to serve as mayor for 13 consecutive years, and whereas the city of Kirkland is a champion for women in leadership, with women holding cornerstone positions within the city Kirkland City government, including Deputy City Manager Beth Goldberg, Human Resources Director Truck Deaver, Police Chief Sherry Harris, Director of Information Technology Smitha Krishnan, Public Works Director Julie Underwood, and Parks and Community Services Director Linz Wagstra. Whereas Julie Underwood, Public Works Director, founded the Northwest Women's Leadership Academy in 2018, a program sponsored by the Washington City County Management Association to advance women working in local government into leadership roles with six city staff completing the academy, Lynn Zwagstra, Andriana Campbell, Shawning Zhang, Prince Cowan, Lisa Brulette, and Lori McKay, and I'm almost done here. <laughs> Whereas the city of Kirkland will be hosting its first women's leadership summit for staff to promote gender balance and diversity, addressing underrepresentation of women in leadership positions, prepare women for leadership roles with training, confidence building, and mentoring, create an alliance of neighborhood and neighborhood of women that support each other and motivate, inspire, and develop leadership skills. And whereas Kirkland City Council adopted Resolution R5550 in July 2022, affirming its support of individuals' rights, right to comprehensive, safe, and accessible reproductive health care, including abortion, and protects visitors to Washington State seeking abortion health care providers in providing abortion health care. And whereas the city of Kirkland is inclusive and celebrates transgender women as they are part of the movement and have championed women and the LGBTQIA plus rights and now, therefore, I, Penny, Mayor Penny Sweet, on behalf of the Kirkland City Council, do hereby proclaim Monday, March 8th, as International Women's Day, and the month of March as Women's History Month in the city of Kirkland, and call on all residents to celebrate the historic and current achievements of women, or Kirkland women in the arts, culture, business, nonprofit, religious, and civic institutions in our city through the courageous deeds, not words, of these remarkable women, Kirkland is one of the best cities in America to live, work, and play. Thank you. Thank you all. Can we get the picture? I'm not going to ask anybody to speak. <laughs> we just spoke a lot. <laughs> Thank you all Thank for being you. here. Uh, let me give that to you.
This is a council that does proclamations and we do them long. <laughs> okay, so this takes us to item number five, communications. This is the time in our meeting when we normally hear from the public on matters that are not quasi-judicial or scheduled for a public hearing of which there are none scheduled this evening. Please limit your com or remarks to three minutes and the council will receive up to three comments each on both sides of each issue. If you're present either in person or virtually or would like to and would like to address the council during this items from the audience period, please sign up using the online public comment instruction link or in person using the posted QR code. For those participating by phone, please dial star nine to be recognized to speak. Community members will be called in the order in which they signed up. Items from the audience is an important part of our business meeting and we ask that everyone be treated with kindness and respect. We ask that you please not clap or applaud after a speaker or express your disagreement with a speaker. We want everyone in Kirkland to feel welcome expressing their viewpoints regardless of content. Because they can be disruptive, signs and placards are not allowed in the council chambers during our meetings, regardless of their content. City Clerk, what have we got coming? Mayor, we have three speakers signed up to address the council. The first one is Sam Uzwak, followed by Jennifer Loy and Dietmar Schimmel. Welcome, Mr. Uzwak. Good evening. My name is Sam Uzwak. I'm the head of school elect for Eastside Preparatory School. Uh, Mayor Sweet, that is an incredibly difficult act to follow. Um, thank you for those very inspiring words. Um, I have a few comments this evening about the health through housing efforts. Um, first, I want to express my appreciation to you, the members of the city council, to the city staff, including Jim Lopez, Kevin Raymond, and Darcy Eilers, for the incredibly hard work being done to craft agreements that will both provide homes for those who are unhoused and ensure the safety of surrounding residents, businesses, and schools. Um, I also appreciate the efforts of Leo Floor and Simon Foster and look forward to listening to their presentation. The latest agreements being reviewed this evening include several key additions that we greatly appreciate, including a community liaison from both the city and county, a schedule of meetings, and restrictions on disruptive behavior. All of these measures address many of our concerns. However, two key points we raised in January are not quite yet fully addressed in the current documents and remain the focus of our attention. The first, weapons. There is no prohibition on firearms or deadly weapons reflected in the agreements. The language remains chiefly the same as what staff presented to council in January. We've proposed some very specific changes that would address our concerns and urge the council to direct staff to implement them. And the second has to do with screening. Both the county and city's proposals include very helpful language, and we are getting so close, and we appreciate the progress made. Uh, but as yet, neither version resolves our concerns. From what I can tell, the city's proposal is identical to what was presented in January. We early proposed some very precise edits to the city's proposal, none of which have been included. If the city is inclined to incorporate this, if the council is inclined to incorporate the city's option, we request the council direct the city to implement the changes we proposed. And while the county's proposal includes some helpful language as currently written, it focuses only on the needs of the individual tenant. And while we agree 
that these are important considerations, we are asking the county to also consider the safety of the surrounding community. We think there are elements in each of these proposals that are workable and can be combined to address our concerns, but there's still work to be done. It's all there. We have a meeting scheduled with the county later this week and hope to be able to work out language that will better address these concerns. But because of the timing of this meeting, we ask the council not recommend either the city's or the county's versions as proposed without changes. We ask for more time to work with city and council staff on an acceptable solution. Again, we're so close. Again, this is so important. And we continue, uh, we look forward to continuing to work with you through this process. Thank you. Thank you. The next speaker is Jennifer Loy. Welcome, Ms. Loy. Good evening. I just have a couple points. Um, I would like to also echo that I really appreciate the engagement, um, particularly with Jim Lopez. I think he's the hardest working man in the city of Kirkland. Um, but um, there are a couple key areas that I would like to draw your attention to. One, and I'm not sure if it's the good neighbor or the code of conduct, there certainly has been progress made in the language in that area, but some key areas that um, I think do not still address in the community concerns, which would be more the jurisdiction of enforcement of the city of Kirkland and not the county, um, include um, a resident parking a vehicle off-site for any reason at all whatsoever, um, a resident setting of permanent supportive housing also setting up a tent off-site for any reason at all whatsoever, hanging out, um, fencing, um, but it could be anything at all, right? and still being allowed to be a resident in permanent supportive housing. Those two things should not coexist. And then finally, the prohibit, to prohibit anybody who has permanent supportive housing from setting up any sort of built structure off-site um, in the community. Um, and then finally, to prohibit residents that have permanent supportive housing, which is you know, a very expensive thing to offer them, um, panhandling throughout the community. There should be no reason to do that with job services available. If you can stand on a corner and panhandle, you can stock shelves at Bartels or Met Market. Background checks. Okay, this is something you've heard me talk about before. Um, you must reject the county. I know they're gonna try and sell you this evening on um, how great their uh, screening process is, but it's just not enough. Um, I am now a city parks volunteer, and you know what I had to do? go through a national criminal background check at, to pull weeds in a park for free. So um, please make sure that you take into consideration what Eastside Prep is saying, add those details, and go with the national background check and reject the county's um, suggestions. Um, and then the other thing is, I think you all really need to just look at what's happening with the other cities, municipalities that are a little bit further ahead of you right now. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of drama happening. There are residents being moved from facility to facility without a lot of care. Like within a couple days, there's notices and they're moved to another facility. So I think you should take the time to look into what's happening at the other facilities before you actually let the ink dry on these agreements. Thank you so much. Thank you. Next speaker is Detmer Schimmel. Welcome, Mr. Schimmel. Good evening, uh, Madam Mayor. Good evening, council members. Uh, I also would like to address the topic of uh, permanent housing. And I can assure you, I have not conferred with Mr. Us Uswak. 
Yeah. So, uh, but I also would like to thank you for the work you put into the agreement, and I definitely uh, agree that uh, the amendments that have been showing up, strengthening the input of the city and the input of the community, so definitely it's a step in the right direction. Uh, that said, uh, I think there are some things uh, missing. Some things probably could be discussed as just a, as some detail of structuring, but let me go to attachment A. I mean, it's not a good thing that the, the word permanent is misspelled twice in the, right in the headline of the section. I would have thought that by now that's con been corrected. Uh, that's just a minor detail. Uh, on page two in section one, it's, it still says, um, that's a key point, that services are voluntary. I don't know how the arrangement works with people uh, receiving treatment uh, voluntarily uh, without a mandatory teeth to it. So somebody wants to get clean and the other person is still uh, 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 continuing its uh, destructive lifestyle. And uh, I alerted you to the Seattle Times article that uh, covered the opioid overdoses uh, in, uh, uh, in King County. And uh, the number of opio over, uh, opioid overdoses in permanent supportive housing uh, settings were barely lower than the ones in unsheltered uh, housing situations. And that goes to the crux of it. If you don't actually mandate the treatment, how do you help those individuals? You don't. They just die in a, in a different place. Um, then uh, section three of the attachment A covers uh, the various reporting requirements to the county. But I don't see anything spelled out actually what happens with this data. Uh, is there any criteria against what is measured? And if we don't meet those measurements, what are the consequences? So we're creating a bunch of data, but what happens to it? Um, then I would like to go on attachment B. Uh, the, um, the point of definitions, I mean, ignoring the fact that uh, the order or how it's listed is kind of a bit bizarre to me, uh, I look at the definition at risk of chronic homelessness. And it says there that basically at, uh, at risk of chronic homelessness describes a household that A, one, includes an adult with a developmental, physical, or behavioral health disability. Two has experienced homelessness for a cumulative total of 10 to 12 months within the previous three years, or has experienced homelessness for a cumulative total of 12 months within the last five years. Now is the keyword, and one includes one adult who, that has been incarcerated within the previous five years in, in a jail or prison. Two includes one adult. Sir, I'm going to have to ask oh. you okay. to The point stop. is, the point is basically. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm going to have to ask you to stop. Yeah. So, but we are happy to receive comment by email if okay. you want to follow up. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Mayor, we don't have anyone else signed up, but there is a virtual audience member with their hand raised, John Van Oppen, so we'll promote him now. Excellent. Mr. Van Open, we can't hear you. Unmute. Hey, sorry about that. <laughs> Thank you all. Um, hey, I wanted to compliment you on a great meeting. I've worked in Kirkland for a long time. That city's awesome. Anyway, I actually uh, work for Zipply Fiber, who I, I, there are a couple things I just wanted to throw out there based on that conversation about Google Fiber. 
Um, first, I would recommend highly that if you're looking for broadband data, you don't use the state data, but you use the newest data from the FCC. Um, there's a great broadband map, covers the whole country. It's the most up-to-date thing out there for mapping. Um, we right now cover 80% roughly of the city's houses with fiber. Um, and that's roughly the same packages that Google Fiber offers. We too are interested in micro-trenching to close that gap of the last 20%. I think, though, actually the big unit count that's missing from the city is really the MDUs, because MDUs are sort of a pay per play with the apartment building owners, and Comcast has quite effectively captured that before any of us existed. And so most of those users in the city only actually have one choice or maybe two. Um, I used to work at Wave as well. Wave also operates in Kirkland, and I just... Think that's important to point out, but they almost only do MDUs and a small area in Juanita. Then, of course, there's uh, Comcast. So those are the main players. I just thought it was really good to maybe inject a couple of facts in there that we could talk about. Our headquarters are actually down right near City Hall. We're in the building where Anthony's is. Our CEO sits there every day. Um, we're happy to work with the city of Kirkland if any data is needed or together on anything you want to trial. We, we've done some micro-trenching, like Google's describing, in Lake Stevens and have local videos that we can show city staff or council members, whoever's interested, happy to provide that. You know, we're a team player. This is our home too. I actually live out in Woodenville with my wife, but it's pretty close to Kirkland and headquarters is Kirkland. And that's where I office out of when I'm in the office. So hopefully that's helpful. I just wanted to throw that information out there for all the attendees and uh, council. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Mr. Van Oppen. No one else is signed up. Okay, is there anyone else who wishes to address the council this evening? Seeing none, I will declare this items from the audience period closed. This will take us to our consent <coughs> calendar before I ask for a motion. We have a special presentation. Oops, I'm sorry, I did skip special presentation. Capital Improvement Program Update. City Manager. Okay, uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. So, um, as you know, periodically we like to check in and let the council know what's going on with our capital improvement program since we're investing tens of millions of dollars of infrastructure. So, uh, we have an overview here for you of projects that are underway and some of the uh, great successes and also some of the uh, challenges that we face in our capital program. And this is going to be led by Julie Underwood, our public works director, and Rod Steitzer, our capital projects manager. Welcome again, Julie. Good evening, Council. So Rod will mainly be leading this presentation, and then I will stick around for questions. Rod, are you? Yeah, you're there. Yes, I am here. I am Take trying it over. to Your uh, turn camera. my video on here. <laughs> Let me just try and do the reshare thing. Um, there you are. I apologize for that. Great. Well, okay, is everyone seeing the screen and the yes. presentation? We are. Great. Uh, thank you, City Manager. Good evening, Madam Mayor uh, and Council. Really excited. 2023 uh, for capital improvements is the year. Uh, we're going to see a lot of construction and a lot of work going on in 2023 with all these high-profile uh, community investments to put those uh, improvements in the ground for everyone in the community. Very excited. Um, we have 14 slides for you that's going to highlight some of our projects, as uh, City Manager pointed out, challenges, themes, those kind of things. Um, but I do want to start out with kind of quantifying exactly 
the program that we have. Uh, our portfolio currently, we're working on 86 different projects in different phases. 11 of those projects are in construction representing $81.5 million worth of investments. Uh, coming up in the next couple of months, we'll be starting five more projects um, representing $32.2 million worth of work. To do all this, we're handling over 150 contracts and meeting with contractors, meeting with consultants to kind of encourage all the work and support in Kirkland. Um, the image on the right there, Fire Station 27, we're starting to see that steel framing come out of the ground. I know Annika tells me updates all the time. It's really exciting to see. So speaking of the fire stations, um, this is one of the programs I'm happy to say that our senior project manager, Annika Davis and the project team have overcome a numerous obstacles for all the program stuff. And it's just, we're on track, on budget, and we've got a really great team syncing things up. Um, on the left-hand side, um, maybe I'll just kind of quickly hit the highlights. The four major projects, 22 and 27, are in construction with the completion dates this year as shown. 21 and 26, we are underway, and we're strategically working uh, to make our submittals uh, to get vested in on those projects, uh, working with our planning department and building department, make sure that those happen appropriately. The image here is something that we use as a tool. We refer to it as the dashboard. It helps us track costs, schedules, risks, those kind of things. We talk about it uh, every week in the meeting. Um, and it's, it's really incredible kind of tool. Really maybe not for reading, but I can share the PowerPoint anytime. Those orange and blue lines that you see are representations of the actual schedule versus the planned schedule. So you can see almost all of them are on time or in one case, slightly ahead, way ahead of time. So we're doing great there. There are risks that come up that we talk about. And one of the risks that we're talking about are some supply chain issues of the backup generators. This is specifically for fire station 22 and 27. Uh, what the team has done is kind of planned, worked together, cooperated, fire department, capital improvements, our facilities team, working together to get occupancy and put a move-in plan in place to overcome that risk. I also want to point out there's two things not shown on this risk. Uh, the temporary fire station is completed and in use. Um, and also, we're going to begin work in 2023 on a $2.7 million fire station 24 training capacity uh, project. So more to come on that, but the fire station uh, is really just moving along really well. Also on track, Totem Lake Connector. Um, here we have another example. Uh, I guess maybe I'm inspired by the proclamation. Uh, over seven of the slides that we have are being led by our senior women uh, PMs. So it's really exciting. Um, this is the case here. We have you and Yang come in new to the city, takes on this $23 million bridge project, has formed a bond and a partnership with the contractor, and they've been working through the winter months after the concrete delays and things like that. So she's really doing a great job. Uh, we just absolutely love her. And uh, let's see, what else did I want to point out? Oh yeah, still going on right now. 
is the installation of the handrails, the protective coatings. We're doing some storm work to do the ditch crossing on the south side. Uh, the lighting's going in, the landscaping's going in, and uh, we actually had a meeting today to talk about the ribbon cutting on June 17th. So that's the TLC. 100th Avenue, um, 100 Avenue, again, another one, Laura Drake leading this one. <laughs> so all the temporary construction uh, easements have been complete, the permits are complete. And as of this morning, I checked, uh, we have 10 contractors holding bids. Those 10 contractors holding bids, they're bigger names than what we typically see. Of course, this is a $26 million project um, and we're getting a lot of um, momentum behind this with a lot of questions. Uh, so we extended the bid date to March 20th. And, but because there's a lot of interest and a relatively large construction amount, we're gonna open bid before we determine what the final funding needs are. There's a lot of variation with these big contractors and big contracts. So we'll be coming back um, later on uh, with a special update to council for 100th Avenue. And um, this one, again, with all of the changes that have happened through the years, we've navigated that one, uh, thanks to all the support from council. Juanita Drive, um, we're planning on advertising Juanita Drive. This one's probably the, one of the most tricky ones to kind of talk about uh, tonight. Um, in October, uh, 19 of the 21 right-of-way acquisitions are complete. We do, uh, we continue to work on the last two um, and we expect those to be completed by uh, late March. Um, in this one, as we've updated cost estimates, including a theme, there, we've seen a theme of labor for the staff on the contract and consultant teams go up. We see the, the continued rise of construction costs, even though we've also seen more bidders and better bids, the engineer estimates are continuing to rise. So this is another one that's gonna fall in the category. We may wanna see what happens with the construction bids. Uh, so this one, we're going to return back to council with options after we kind of revisit these shortfalls and maybe even possibly talk about phasing the project. What is a convenient way that we could maybe accomplish this, uh, providing those non-motorized connections and intersection safety in a different kind of package. Um, I do want to talk about trees along this project. A lot of trees along this corridor. It's a, it's a lengthy corridor. So there's over 207 uh, trees inventory. And these are the designated significant trees. These aren't just all the little ones. There's even more of those. 127 are scheduled for removal. This is to make way of those non-motorized improvements and to appropriately grade the slopes back. 91 are currently planned to be replaced. That is following our Kirkland codes. Um, that's going to allow the safety and sight distance and lighting to appropriately uh, progress through the corridor. Right now, we're looking for that balance 36. Can we fit them within the right-of-way corridor within the project limits right now? We don't have that answer just yet. Uh, most likely, it's along the west side of the street, um, or if we can, within those slopes that are being graded back for the sidewalk, um, put them there. But this is another one, uh, high, high profile, that we're looking at uh, completing in 2023 or getting started in 2023. 
another project that uh, high profile, what we're really working on getting a, a bang in 2023 out of is our Safer Routes to School. This is the next phase of that first phase that we completed uh, a couple of years ago. Right now, we're hiring two additional staff positions that were authorized to take this project. It's over $25 million worth of sidewalk improvements. We have design consultant contracts in routing right now. And we've coordinated all of the Safer Routes to School work with our neighborhood safety program, our sidewalk maintenance program, and a grant that we received on 132nd Avenue. So we're coordinating all those efforts, make sure we get the most efficient delivery and implementation of all the projects. And I wanted to highlight all the things that we kind of got starting in 2023. So with over 40 projects in the list, um, we're actually getting started on most all of them in 2023. Many of them will require lengthy permitting or complex design. So we won't construct them all in 2023, but we're getting right out of the gates and getting after all the crosswalks, sidewalks, green bike markings, ADA ramps, all those things in 2023. Um, our, this brings us to our sound transit investments. Um, we actually have our, our design consultants uh, signed up under contract for both of them. Uh, on the image, the star is representing the pet and bike connection that we worked through with sound transit, uh, building a non-motorized connection all the way from downtown into the new interchange. And then the other project that we're really focusing on is what we refer to as the third lane. This is from 120th to 122nd on 85th. In both cases, uh, we have some preliminary thoughts and ideas. This is very early on with the consultants and we're gonna be reviewing their cost estimates and reviewing the road sections um, in the next month or so and we'll have more information there. 132nd Square Park. Um, working. Uh, we're so happy to work, have a great relationship with Parks Department. Um, this is another one. We have a senior project coordinator um, working on this, uh, Amy. So she does a great job. And she actually was able to work with the Department of Ecology and secure an additional $100,000 uh, for this project. You may remember there were some soils and some surface water drainage issues out there. Uh, using those to leverage an extra $100,000 in funding to make sure that we can appropriately address the needs uh, for the park. Again, working through uh, the winter months on this, uh, we're doing some redesign to the zip line uh, so that we meet all of the safety requirements. And I think this week, Amy told me this morning, uh, pavilion roof is planned to be installed. So that's really great. In this one, council tour scheduled for April 1st, um, which is slightly before our substantial completion and with a grand opening uh, event scheduled in May or June. Uh, I just love this image. It just stands out so much that that field looks really great and the lights on it, very excited. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about our Slater CKC crossing. This is the one that's near Toyota. Um, so this direction in the lower right, uh, that's looking towards the west. Uh, so what we have done to date on these projects is installed the safety fencing so that um, really it's kind of guiding you and installed signage guiding you to the 124th 
um, Street Slater intersection where there's a, a marked and uh, protected crosswalk so that non-motorized users can get across the busy roadway safely. Uh, this is all ahead of the proposed improvements shown up in the upper right, uh, which is going to be one of our first hawk signals, which is actually a regulated stop for pedestrians, stop and go signal. So uh, really been waiting for that. That's really a great idea. Uh, Joel and his team did a fantastic job researching and laying that out. So um, really excited about that. The other good thing about this one is we had learned that a past project had an additional $1.086 million uh, that the state had asked us to redistribute into another project. Uh, the project that came to mind first and foremost is this project. It fits the criteria of what that grant money was originally for, uh, transportation and safety. And it's also available for the timing of this project, which is starting design now, and with construction coming up as soon as we get the permits and design complete. Um, we also have a $500,000 uh, appropriation request to the legislator for this project. So in all, I don't have a note here, this is a $3.2 million estimated project of which we're looking to seek about 1.5, 1.6 external funds to help um, move this project along. This corridor is also really a popular um, thing that NUD, North Shore Utility District, likes to talk about. Uh, they do have some future plans that they would like to implement through this intersection. So we meet um, every couple of weeks with them to just talk about capital improvements. Uh, and this is one that we talked about. So close coordination with PSE and NUD on that. This brings me to Lake and Kirkland intersection. Um, the real highlight on this one is the schedule is, is slightly de delayed. I would say that turns out it's going to actually maybe work out better for construction season. Uh, the cause of the delay, um, we have been working with PSE and they had determined that what they need to do is bring in uh, a different contractor, their subcontractor, Patelco, to install the electrical service for this intersection. Um, with that, and with additional costs of labor and construction it, uh, brought into the picture, there's potentially a $450,000 shortfall of which we've already are working with the state to potentially receive additional grant funding to cover that shortfall there. We will know more in um, early to mid April on if we can receive additional funding. Um, what this does though, the schedule is in the lower left. You see that orange highlight is the PSE delay because um, of the, the installation of the line. What that does though, shifting it out and seeking additional funds puts us into a start of construction after the 4th of July parade. That That's actually, um, good for the 4th of July parade so that the route and safety through the intersection can be the best that it can be. It also allows us to do construction of the stormwater work during the drier months. So this one, um, our schedule, kind of a recent development with the um, need to install the electrical service, but we're, we're tracking this closely and we're also pursuing additional funds 
for this project. Also have some additional projects that don't have slides, but they, they, they rose up to the, to the visibility of our capital improvement program. One is the ionization and ventilization for City Hall and Justice Center. That project is complete. That was a, a COVID-driven um, in safety improvement for the health within the buildings. That's good. Another one I'm gonna jump to the bottom here is the greenways. So we had been working with PSE uh, to make sure that we get the electrical needs met for all of our RFB crossings. Those are those rapid flashing beacon crossings. And those are now functional on both 75th and 128th Avenue. So those lights are now up and running. The 108th Q jumps is a project um, we talk about quite a bit and it's an evolving project. So we have been working closely with King County Metro. In fact, we had a meeting just today, uh, kind of looking at the overall plan that King County Metro has for what they refer to as their K-line project, uh, which goes right through Kirkland. Uh, this is evolving and King County Metro is still putting some thoughts together uh, in which we will know more information after March 15th. But some of the big thoughts are, do we partner with King County Metro in a different way? The environmental permitting, which could save us four years, uh, things like that. Who will do the construction? Those are things that are kind of in discussion right now, but we'll return to council with an update uh, once we know more information. We've been raising our um, coordination with PSE uh, in the last eight months, I would say we have regular monthly meetings. And on February 10th, we actually sat down and met with PSE. PSE is not immune to all of the rising costs and staff resource needs that everyone's experienced in the region. Um, and what we talked about them is what can we do to improve the Kirkland delivery side of things when we partnered with PSE. Uh, some of the things that we talked about, what are the expectations for responsiveness for both Kirkland and uh, PSE so that we can coordinate the projects together? Um, what about the continuity of staffing? How, how do we transfer information when staff come and go uh, with PSE? We also take a look and wanna understand their limitations of their processes are they sequential? Do they have to get their right-of-way elements fixed before they can start design? You know, can we sequence those differently? These are some of the things we talked about. Uh, PSE was receptive of that. They talked a lot about accountability. We had their managers and supervisors in the meeting. Uh, and actually, it's been paid off. Uh, just last week alone, four projects we were able to successfully such as the RFBs for the Greenways project, successfully get PSE coordinated work done. So um, we're still monitoring this really closely, but we're I'm encouraged by the February 10th meeting, which Julie did a great job leading. Um, I wanna talk a little bit about external funding. We're putting a lot of things in place uh, to help uh, with the projects and the delivery, uh, including seeking grant funds. Uh, this year, we have 33 active capital grants. Last year at this time, we had 28. Uh, a couple of the highlights there, you can see um, we have 
a pet and bike grant. We have two surface water grants. Uh, one is on Goat Hill. Uh, that's really going to help our uh, project along there, making sure that we can address the surface water needs up on Goat Hill. We're also pursuing external opportunities. Um, I think we mentioned the uh, Slater Avenue. Here we see that 500,000 and then 1.086 million again. We're also pursuing 855,000 for the Juanita Drive at 132nd Trail Connection. This is going across Denny Creek to the west of Juanita Drive. Uh, we'll know more about that later. Um, and then also the Lake and Kirkland funding increase, 440,000. There's also a federal grant competitions that we uh, are looking at very closely. Uh, there's the bipartisan infrastructure law, the bill law funding. We're looking at those. Uh, there's some potential, although that's really big, really wide, there is some potential projects that will uh, potentially benefit Kirkland. So we're looking at that. Um, the Safer Streets for All, SS4A, it's kind of a new program. Looking at that, what is it doing with our sidewalks? Potentially, we have a lot of um, sidewalk needs that we could qualify in there. Let's see here. Oh, that was that was my last slide. So I'll pause Ryan, there. Yeah, go ahead. Ryan, you had just went really fast over 124th. Oh. So if you could go back. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I apologize for that. Um, you are right. Yeah, 124th. This is another project. Uh, where we are now, right away is... Uh, certification is in process with WashDOT. This is one where the, the COVID had impact the legal processes to advance things, uh, but we've dealt with that. Um, we have a, new, a number of um, things going on with the design that we, we were able to solve. Let me make sure. So all that said and done, we are still on track to advertise the project um, starting in April. So we expect the right-of-way certification to be completed in March. Uh, this is a one-year construction, but there is some funding options that we would like to develop for council consideration. And up in the upper right uh, kind of has a snapshot of the budget for this project. Total projects, 18.6 million, 41% of this currently external uh, we had some additional acquisition uh, with the soft cost. That's right in the $660,000 range. Uh, we see that themed inflation and labor increase, roughly about 9%. Uh, that's $935,000. And then the soft costs and contingencies associated with these increases, four hundred five. dollars So roughly right about $2 million estimated increase. And that is again, in the market condition where our estimates are still projecting high and we're starting to see a lot of bids come in. So, um, Julie, is there any others that I... No, I, you covered those? it all. And I think we just want to open it up and see if council has any questions about any particular project. Of course, we wanted to highlight the projects that you have on your work program and lead with those, but to see if there were any other um, projects of interest that we can provide information for. Super, thanks both of you for a great, very exciting presentation, very expensive presentation. <laughs> so, Councilmember Nixon. 
Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, of course, I have question about projects that weren't on your list. Um, and when you talked about having met with the Puget Sound Energy staff, one thing that came to mind for me is that a few years back, uh, they did a lot of community engagement on a couple of major projects, Energize East Side to connect uh, down to Renton and the Juanita Sammamish 115-kilovolt uh, circuit for redundancy. And it seems like it's just gone completely silent. And I'm curious if you talked about the status of those or if we could get an update on the status of those projects. Just curious. Uh, that, that didn't come up in, in any of the conversations we had. We really focused on the delivery on the Kirkland side of things. But we can get an update for that one for sure. Any further discussion? Uh, Councilmember Pascal. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, thanks, Rod and Julie, for the update. Uh, a huge amount of work, uh, so appreciate uh, this timely update on things. A couple, a couple projects, just in terms of schedule, I get questions about. One is the 124th Street and 116th Avenue intersection there in Totem Lake. Uh, signal poles went up, new signal went in, new signal's gone. Um, just curious what's, uh, getting questions, not sure what, what's going on with that and what the schedule Yeah, is. Yeah, so on that one, uh, what happened is because there's the federal funding on that one, uh, the state inspection uh, didn't happen prior to the installation. So those are being inspected right now and then they'll be reinstalled. Um, yeah, that one had some complications, a lot of coordination going on. Um, I will, uh, as we talk, try to get an update on that schedule here. Um, but I want to say that it's it's scheduled for April completion. Great. And then, uh, and then the, the downtown pedestrian crossing improvements at uh, Central Way and and at First Street. Um, you know, see that some of the foundations going in for the new RFBs and then also at Main, I think it's Main Street kind of there by uh, the Wing Dome, um, mm -hmm. that, that crosswalk too. Are those are those going to be this this the summer kind of time frame? Yes, yeah. yes they are. Um, yeah, again, those are ones that really are heavily reliant on the coordination with Puget Sound Energy and we bring those up. Um, they're aware of that. Uh, we're in the final stretches of getting those uh, through the PSE permit process. And uh, we, I expect those to be finished, yeah, this summer. Great, and then just a couple comments that I wanna just leave you all with. One, appreciate the 100th Avenue update, really looking forward to that. Um, hopefully getting some favorable bids. Uh, so crossing my fingers, uh, mm -hmm. that's such a major project and it's gonna be good to see that moving forward. Second, I was out <clears throat> on my bike for the first time in too long, uh, going around town this weekend. And the one thing that kind of struck me more than has struck me in the past is just the deteriorating pavement conditions. Uh, it's it's more striking than I, I seem to remember it. And so I'm just wondering, you know, if you all can can just kind of think about flexibility on how to address some of those items going forward, you know, whether that's an expanding program 
for uh, how maintenance crews can tackle things more than just potholes, but maybe larger sections that are really um, causing some problems. Uh, so I, I don't, I know you don't have an answer for all that, but but just something to kind of continue thinking about because it's just going to um, be, a, be a challenge yeah. to address. Yeah. So. Um... Pavement preservation, uh, there was the last October, we had that as part of one of our CIP update memo items uh, that in, talked a little bit about funding levels necessary to maintain the pavement condition index PS, PCI. Uh, and we really focused on the next 10 years. Uh, it's exactly what you say. And then what we've been doing recently here, um, Julie, thanks for championing this, is we're partnering CIP and our maintenance teams. And we're looking at the strategies, uh, our streets and grounds teams, looking at the strategies of what we can do um, to effectively maintain the pavement condition index, whether it's a combination of maintenance and contract work or pothole repairs, crack sealing, those kind of things. But um, it is, we'll, we'll bring more information back. Later right, yeah, we, we kicked off a staff kind of, uh, a staff, streets strategic planning meeting last week about this very topic. And so this is something that I've uh, kind of tasked our team to kind of look at over the next 10 years. What is our um, strategy? Because we do a combination of in-house outside. And so we really want to look at that and see where should this go? And then also look at funding because, um, you know, many of you know that at some point, um, the funding will be a, be a challenge. Yeah. So, well, yeah. and that's good. And then I guess I just finally just end it with uh, really pleased with the meeting last week on wanting to drive in Northeast 131st Way. I, I think the whole council had attended uh, that meeting and, and a lot of residents. And uh, I know there's a lot of questions and things like that, but that's good. I mean, that's what those meetings are for, right? If folks have questions and want to offer comments. And so I just, I guess, my my thoughts are I'd like to see those more more often, kind of going forward. You know, I, I'm sure folks are interested in some of these other ones, projects that you talked about tonight. Especially as people start seeing construction take place, they're going to be having questions. Um, so, you know, if you can think about how to, you know, what that looks like and whether or not there can be some kind of rhythm in that, uh, I think the community would really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Any further thanks. discussion? Great report. Um, thanks for plugging along on our work plan. Thank you. Um, quick update for the downtown RFB crossings. Uh, we're actually expecting that to be complete late April, so a little bit before summer. Great. So, thanks to thanks. both of you. Okay. Thanks, that, everyone. Goodbye. Okay, that takes us to item number eight, our consent calendar. Before we have a motion, I'd like to ask Deputy Mayor Arnold to present the audit of accounts. Thank you, Madam Mayor. We had payroll in the amount of $4,732,289.73 and bills in the amount of $5,947,436.08. Thank you. Can I get a motion to approve the consent calendar? So moved. Second. It's been moved by Councilmember Falcone, seconded by Councilmember Black. Discussion. Councilmember Black. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, so I'm going to remove uh, item um, 
8H1 from the consent calendar uh, in order that we can pick it, we can take it up during our regular business. Um, I want to offer a technical amendment. Uh, it's not going to come as a surprise to my colleagues. Staff circulated what that technical amendment would be. Excellent. We're going <clears> to <throat> move that to item 9D on our agenda. Um, Thank you. Therefore, the question is on the motion to approve the consent calendar with the deletion of the item per Councilmember Black. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Those opposed? The motion carries unanimously. Okay. It is 8.30. Do, do we want to begin the business agenda? All right, great. Uh, let's begin with item A, the interview selection committee recommendation. City manager. Okay, I believe this is actually turned over to the interview selection committee and the city clerk to uh, give you the recommendation oh, or council approval. Council members. Deputy Mayor Arnold. Sure, I will jump in. We have a number of recommendations here. We have about 30 interviews that we are recommending for the night. To get to that 30, we are recommending that interviews, that incumbents be appointed without uh, being interviewed, that we look at combining some interviews of folks that we're considering for um, that have applied to and we're considering for multiple positions. Great. In addition, there was um, an email from the, the um, city clerk that we, in our consideration, did not uh, reflect the fact that in our uh, December meeting, we actually appointed an alternate um, for the uh, Cultural Arts Commission that would go through the 2024 a recruiting period. So while our interview selection committee discussions was anticipating that we would have three um, open positions to recruit for, we only actually have two adult positions there. That's for the human services. I'm sorry, for the human services. Thank you, city clerk. And so, um, uh, so for human services, we have, yes, uh, three adult positions, only two adult positions, and we are um, still recommending uh, five people to interview. Well, the the only thing I'd add to that is that one of those one of those two is would be filled by an incumbent. So there's really only one. No, opening. sorry, there's. Yeah. Uh, I believe there's really only one opening on the human services. That's why we that's why we only have four um, adults. We're recommending to interview four adults for that. Do I have that right, uh, City Clerk? You do. Okay. And did you want to add the salary commission, the new application that we received for the salary commission from Paul Jan? That was an email I sent today. So we did receive an application for the salary commission afterwards. We haven't considered whether we want to continue to have other uh, applicants or not. Um, Personally, just one council member's recommendation is that we would wait to have multiple applicants before we consider that. Okay. <coughs> so the formal recommendation is amended with this, with the comments that you've just given us. I don't think the recommendation is amended. We're still recommending the same slate of people to interview. Just the context has changed that 
um, even though we're doing this number of interviews for human services, it is fewer vacancies. Great. Okay. So, could I get a motion? Oh, Councilmember Black. Yeah, thank you, Madam Mayor. Just a couple follow-up questions real quick uh, before we have a motion. Um, one, um, I appreciate the recommendation of combining um, interview for applicants who've applied for multiple positions. We do ask uh, our applicants questions related to their position. Are we going to add a little, little bit of extra time so that we can address both, uh, both positions that they're they're both roles that they're applying for? Good question, Councilmember Black. That did come up during our discussion that we would customize those particular interviews to cover the uh, specifics of both. Yeah. I think that makes good sense. Still, there's an economy of scale there. Yeah, it would be not having to cover the same background yep. uh, questions. And then my other question is, I know uh, my sense is that the salary commission, the salary commissioners, have a, a more robust um, agenda uh, perhaps this year than uh, they've maybe taken on in the past. Um, I appreciate uh, the recommendation that we spend a little bit more time um, with uh, uh, attracting more uh, applicants. Is that going to affect, the, do, we, the, do my colleagues have any sense of whether that's going, or the city clerk have any sense of whether that's going to affect the agenda, the upcoming work program for the salary commission, if there's a delay? It should not. Okay. All right. Excellent. Can I get a motion to approve the uh, recommendation? So moved. So moved by Councilmember Curtis. Second. Seconded by Councilmember Black. Uh, all those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries unanimously. This takes us to item, wait a minute. Health through housing agreements, screening options. City manager. Okay, thank you. I was gonna say we just lost our deputy city manager, <laughs> <laughs> but he is back. So, <laughs> I'll just go ahead and turn this over to Jim Lopez, who, as you heard, has been working very hard along with our city attorney Darcy, Darcy Eilers, um, as well as our colleagues from King County, are here to speak to the issue of our uh, latest update on our health through housing agreement. Thank you very much, city manager. Oh, wrong one. <laughs> this one? So first, first, minimize that and go ahead and uh, reopen the agreement that way. Yeah, I'll just hold you to it. You, you want to close the parks one and open the... I wanted to do the parks presentation, but. <laughs> so thank you, everybody. Uh, thank you, City Manager, Madam Mayor, Deputy Mayor, and Council. It's my pleasure to be here tonight to talk again, another update on King County's permanent supportive housing program in Kirkland. Uh, as always, a big thanks to City Attorney Darcy Eilers for all her work and the team, Andriana Campbell. And 
to the King County team and Leo Floor, the director of the uh, Community and Human Services at the county is here tonight. Thank you very much, Leo. Leo is actually going to be part of the presentation tonight. I'm going to turn it over to him when we talk about the county screening process. What we hope to do tonight is give some background and uh, very specifically talk a little bit about the process that got us here. I think Councilmember Pascal had asked last time for us to be sure to take a minute and talk about how we have incorporated what the community has been asking over this last year and to try to kind of clearly communicate what we've incorporated from that. Now, there is a lot that's come from our experiences working with the community and the county prior to when we passed Resolution 5522 back in March of 22, and I'm going to talk about that too because there's a lot there, but we do want to take a minute to talk about that. We are going to talk as well tonight about the draft agreements because we did incorporate, we took county uh, council guidance from the last presentation in February, and we have incorporated, we've negotiated and incorporated that language with the council. I will give you an update on that tonight. So the document is getting more and more mature. And then for section three tonight, we'll talk about the draft screening process. What we're gonna do is we're gonna turn it over to the county so that the county can answer your questions directly. We did put the screening criteria in the council packet prior to um, this presentation I did put on your seats two important pieces of information. One is a letter from the King County Sheriff's Office. We had asked the county to provide that and we're grateful for that. Thank you very much. And another is a slide. Now we did the amazing work of Darcy Eilers. We did actually get that slide incorporated into the deck. So I will be able to show that tonight. We moved quickly. So for the background, I, I should have done this earlier, but I do want to put this slide in tonight just to remind us all about why we're here and why the council has worked to in, in this leadership in your leadership capacity to address this issue with the county. In May of 22, at least 6,000 people sleep outside every night in King County. As of May, that was the number. In 2020, a point in time count, and we, we do need to get more recent data, but on the east side, there were 586 people in shelters and 446 people unsheltered. And in 2022, more than 270 people without secure housing died in King County. And that's the highest number in 20 years. So as we talk about our continuum, it's just another moment to reflect on how critical permanent supportive housing is for the city of Kirkland and the east side and all of our communities to address this pressing generational challenge. Now, in the spirit of showing tonight the work that we've done, but also we'll post this PowerPoint, we want in a mechanism that's a little easier to see, even though I love our packets dearly, they do get a little dense when we cite where they are, where they are in, the, in the agreement. So we wanted to just put in a kind of clear way to read some of the important provisions really that we hear the community, we hear the council, everything from the safety and security plan, the code of conduct and the neighborhood liaison. These are all things that dispute resolution process. All of these things are part of 5522. Uh, things like 24 staffing and no designated safer consumption or injection facility, no car camping or camping of any kind. 
I believe the answer to Jennifer Loy's concern tonight, we were in the back researching that, I believe the answer is no, you cannot do that because one of the, it, when, she, when, when they talked about building tents when you have a facility, I think one of the criteria in the Ninth Circuit opinion is that the city can act on their code if there is a bed available. So I guess that's my at the dais analysis, but would certainly follow up uh, with you uh, further on that. And we appreciate Jennifer raising her points tonight. But there's also enhancements to 5522. And I think through this year long process, some very important um, additions to the agreement. And I really appreciate Sam and EPS being here tonight. And I very much appreciate Sam you noting that. That means a lot to us. And we appreciate your work on this. Is the, the county has gone from a minimum of 15% in the renewal to 65%. And I think it's good to, to emphasize that. It's over 333%. My law professor warned me never to practice math in public, so I did vet that in the halls of City Hall. Um, but there's other very important things. But I think that is probably one of the most responsive things to our community, is that it is addressing east side concerns. It is addressing directly the city of Kirkland concerns. There are defined minimum performance metrics in the PSHA that did not exist in 5522. And Councilmember Curtis, we're working hard to, eat, to add even more as you had given us guidance. We're going to work with the county on that. But there are at least four performance measures. Councilmember Pascoe, you had given us guidance on that, and the, count, the county added several directly from their implementation plan. That's in the PSHA, the Permanent Supportive Housing Agreement. The requirement for initial review of performance metrics after six months, that's in response to community feedback. They want us to be very engaged. Regular community meetings. This is in response to both council and community feedback, and I think this was a big EPS ask. Um, we attended a meeting with EPS leadership in the county. It's a very productive meeting where we started to kind of design how that meetings might work. And that's performance and oversight. Some details in the code of conduct articulating and addressing off-premises behavior. I know Councilmember Nixon, you had asked us several times about this. Uh, we got really good feedback, Councilmember Falcone, Councilmember Curtis, last time about cleaning up that language, getting that language much more to the point. We did put in the packet, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but that was very important to the community as we understood it, and that's addressing off-premises behavior. We, do, we did suggest here that, and this isn't a direct enhancement from the community, that once we do the permanent supportive housing agreement and the model services agreement, that additional amendments and approval are by the city manager. This is in order to streamline the process. We have probably an unprecedented amount of information in front of you and in front of our community at this stage in the county's process. I'll let Leo decide if that's hyperbole or fact. I think it's fact. Um, so we hope that the city manager can take, take it from here, obviously with council oversight. And monetary damages as a provision, as an additional memory, I do think Councilmember Nixon, we talked about that. There is both equitable relief and uh, monetary relief in the agreement. So very quickly, don't need to go over this again, but a very important part of the community was that we are present as a government before you make the decision. And since 5522, we've conducted five focus groups, 50 attendees. They were really well attended. We got really good insight. We had a virtual town hall in May. We've responded to over 356 R. Kirklands. 
yes, we did use templates on many of them, but it was a lot of responses. Uh, we hosted ad hoc community meetings with Lakeview and Central Houghton. They gave us great insight, and we appreciate that. We met several times with leadership from the Eastside Preparatory School. Hope I'm saying that right. We provided a list of pre-qualified uh, permanent supportive housing service providers to the community, and the county was, I kind of nagged them about that, and I appreciate them being responsive. We actually conducted a formal public hearing, uh, as you know, Council, and we don't have to do that, but we did it. And I've presented at one study session and now three council meetings since November. Is this the fourth? Maybe. This might be my fourth. Okay, so the draft agreements, really quickly. We have updated. This is the uh, table of contents, so I'll move through quickly. Uh, and Madam Mayor, maybe you could stop me if the council needs, because this is all in the packet. The code of conduct language now addresses resident behavior both on and off the premises. This is agreed to code of conduct, and we hope that we've incorporated council's feedback adequately. The city and county now have a liaison to facilitate communications between the operator and the community. Thank you, council. Thank you, city manager. Thank you, Lynn Zweikstra, in advance. <laughs> uh, we are requiring a community relations plan to include a regular schedule of community meetings. We talked about that. Uh, with EPS and um, the community, um, and approval of the Code of Conduct, Community Relations Plan, and Good Neighbor Agreement will be through the city manager. And I do want to thank the county here because the Good Neighbor Agreement was actually not in 5522, and I know we're in a million different plans. Suffice to say, we did not want any ambiguity for the community. All of those plans will go to the city manager. Uh, so thank you. The code of conduct, I'm gonna stop here. Here's the language. We took the feedback. We, we tried to make this language um, much more specific to expectations of occupant behavior around harassment, acts of violence, threats of violence against persons living in, working in, or visiting the area, and no disruptive behavior that pre presents a significant threat to community safety. So that was our edit. Thank you. Looks good. So for the community relations and good neighbor agreement, here we wrote in that the city will designate a liaison uh, to the contractor, and this is now as part of the agreement. Uh, the liaison will have a very important role in both the community relations plan and community events, and it will be a direct conduit to the city manager's office as well, so we're very grateful for this resource. Good to go. So the community, uh, again, on the good neighbor agreement, um, the county, so the community relations plan now will include a schedule of regular meetings. Importantly, I think we're going to meet every quarter for the first two years, and then we'll decide after that. Oftentimes, the first two years is really where trust is built, and we need to establish, and then we'll, we'll kind of come back to the council and let you know what we're thinking of as we need to do it beyond two years. And I assume there will be ad hoc meetings as needed. Yes, there will, yep. So here um, we've put the city manager as the, we've added this language that the good neighbor agreement and future amendments come through the city manager. Uh, we've also added the code of conduct and future amendments through the city manager. There's one thing in 5522 that we didn't touch, which was through the chief of police, but we figured it's in 5522, we don't need to amend it. 
it's still going to be reporting directly to Kurt, so we kind of left the safety plan that way. It's all at the staff level. So here, the performance measures, um, the PSHA now requires the county and its facility operator to publicly report within six months of the facility's opening and annually thereafter. We detail specific performance measures that should be included in the report to council. And the draft agreements do include in the memorandum, they reflect prior performance measures. Now what's important is the county and the city have agreed to update the measures in collaboration with the professional evaluation staff. And this, I think, is we're trying to be directly responsible to the council and specifically Councilmember Curtis around positive performance measures, performance measures that show success in the organization. And what we want to make sure we do working with the county and their evaluation staff is get that right. And employment would likely be part of it, but we want to make sure that we work together because the county, as if I'm understanding it, is going to aggregate all this data, so they want to get it done for us and everybody at the same time. So we will work on that. And then the draft agreement will reflect this ongoing work. Uh, Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, thank you, um, Deputy City Manager. I really appreciate all of um, what you're going over. I just have a question about the, um, the data that are going to be collected. We have kind of the, um, the harder data and then the softer data, right? And so the behavioral data is a little bit easier. The opinion data is, takes a little bit more work. Um, and so are there plans to collect opinion data on how residents are feeling about how they're doing, about their own self-assessment of their lives when they enter versus as time goes on in addition to metrics such as employment, health, et cetera? Well, I'll say that data seems very meaningful and it should be part of the process. Perhaps I can let Director Floor address it when he talks. Uh, my understanding, the direction that the county staff has given us is that they're open to having conversations about data as long as we can include their evaluations so that they don't let us down, that they actually get it. But I think that is a really meaningful ad. So some additional modifications. Um, these are really just housekeeping. We wanted to, they're in the memo, but we wanted to put them in a slide. They've restated the facility's operator, operator's obligation to provide permanent supportive housing for eligible individuals. I think that's a definitional change rather than say, I forget what it said before, but through our like super detailed public engagement work, we kind of discovered that I think the county needed to update some of the documents. Do you, want, do you want me to say what it was, Jim? Yeah, please. It's just, it used to say um, permanent supportive housing for um, chronically homeless and the actual permanent supportive housings for chronically homeless or those at risk of chronic homelessness with have a bunch of criteria. And so it just was expanded to include both those groups and not just the chronically homeless group. Uh, the county will provide a revised definition of permanent supportive housing. Again, I think that's them updating some of their documents. And then the background screening was really just kind of a update error. We've been iterating these documents so much. Thank you, Darcy. Uh, we just needed to take it out of the services agreement and make sure that it was in the uh, PSHA, the Permanent Supportive Housing Agreement, which to the rest of the world probably just sounds like, yeah. But it, we feel like it's important to bring it to your attention that we did that. 
So as a transition, because that change is involving the screening process. One second, Jim. Councilmember Cruz. I have a couple additions before we move on to some yes. agreements. Um, so thank you, and thank you for that presentation, and thank you for centering us at the beginning of your presentation why we're here. Mm -hmm. And, um, oh, I'm feeling the waterworks. Isn't that strange? Um, I just want to take, I'm so glad that tonight people acknowledge your effort and your hard work. And I also want to take a moment to recognize you have put countless hours in, you have been available for everyone, constituents, neighborhood cities, schools, businesses, neighborhood associations, you're answering questions, you're responding to requests, but what's important to me is you're doing this with transparency and empathy. You are leading with your heart and you care about the people that live here and the people that will, will be living here. So I just want to thank you from me. You're a wonderful ambassador thank for you. the city of Kirkland. Ditto so, that. Thank you. Thank you um, now to yes. the nitpicking. Yes. <laughs> so I have two, um, two minor, minor things. Um, in section 21, under management and operation of the premises on section D, it currently reads, the contractor agrees not to approve or authorize any camping on the premises. I'll, I'll fast forward, been watching the legislator, last line. Um, <laughs> it says the contractor agrees to notify the county as soon as practical when anyone is observed or believed to be camping or otherwise sleeping on the premises. I would like to add that people are gonna hold us personally responsible and mm -hmm. we have a city liaison. So I would like to modify that to either say the contractor agrees to notify the city liaison and or the county. And I'm fine if county stays in there, but I would like the city liaison to also be notified. Got it. And then the other one is on health and safety, section 24I, and it talks about the security plan developed by the contractor. It currently says in consultation with uh, the Kirkland Police Department, my understanding from 5522 is that KPD needs to approve that agreement. So instead of consultation, I would say with approval of the Kirkland Got Police it. Department. So thank you. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. Any further discussion? Go ahead, Jim. So with that, um, the only section remaining for, for staff for tonight's conversation, and we think perhaps with council approval for the, for the documents, is to be included in the PSHA, the type of background screening process that will be deployed to ensure the positive outcomes of the program and in compliance with 5522. The King County has provided a proposed screening process. And our thought tonight, although we did put our, the background screening process, kind of a standard background screening process in the packet, was to turn the, the podium to Deputy, I'm sorry, Director Floor to present and to answer your questions about that. Because I think what we've asked is that the county come forward with some details and I think they would be the best entity to explain that. So again, thank you Darcy for working so quickly to put the county slide. You have this slide physically uh, with you now, but I'm gonna turn it over to, to, to Leo and um, I'll be returning once he's done, thank you. Welcome, Leo. Madam Mayor, uh, Mr. Deputy Mayor, Council Members, thank you for having me. For the record, my name is Leo Flor, and I have the privilege of directing King County's Department of Community and Human Services. 
Uh, I also apologize. I think I may have uh, uh, put more on one slide here than uh, uh, was the norm in the previous slides, uh, but this is my only slide. Um, I did have the uh, pleasure of attending uh, two meetings ago when the council undertook this topic and came away with three things that I hope to address here today. Uh, first was an interest uh, expressed by some of the members of the council that we move uh, with urgency that befits the situation, and I do believe that Deputy uh, City Manager Lopez in the beginning did highlight uh, the urgency of the, the matter. Uh, the one sort of framing statistic that I'd add uh, and this is something that I've really appreciated learning more about and seeing from the, the, the city of Kirkland, uh, is that within all of those numbers, extreme racial disproportionality exists. Uh, so black members of our community in King County make up about 6% of the population and they make up almost one third of the people who experience chronic homelessness. Native members of our community make up less than 1% of the overall population of King County and they are five times overrepresented at least and in some ways that we measure or count people experiencing homelessness, uh, they make up as much as 15% of the population experiencing chronic homelessness. And so uh, I think in addition to highlighting the fact that um, this, is, this is a life and death matter, um, uh, it's really something that I have appreciated the city's leadership on and, and I'm really happy to be able to propose something that I think is consistent with that. Uh, the second thing uh, I, I heard was uh, you know, where's the, where are the details? Um, show us some details, and so I do hope to get into those details so that, uh, and answer any questions that you might have about the process that we have proposed. Uh, and then, uh, I think finally the thing that uh, I would, I've heard from everybody, including all the folks that we've spoken to, and I think that th is addressed here is, uh, I think that there is substantial agreement amongst everybody who's involved in this process about uh, what we seek, which is a facility that can provide permanent supportive housing in a way that is safe both for the residents of the facility and the community, including the, the, you know, the school uh, that is next to it. And, and that to me is just an uncontroversial premise. Uh, and one of the things that when we talk about screening, uh, I think a question uh, for the council's consideration is by what mechanism can we actually achieve that safety most effectively? Um, and the, one of the, the forms of that question is, is it by background check or is it by other ways of assessing a person's uh, experiences and, um, and what they need to be successful and whether they should reside in the facility? And that's what I hope to get into a little bit here today. Uh, so uh, overall, we have uh, been working uh, for a year now uh, with uh, city staff uh, to develop a two-part process that we are proposing. And so I'm focusing on what we're calling phase two, but uh, just to say it again, phase one would be uh, executed in partnership with the King County Sheriff's Office and we provided a letter that sort of documents exactly what they would do and how they would do it. And the purpose of that is to identify uh, in as exact a way as, uh, as we can identify who is not allowed to live in a community protection zone. Uh, I believe the city manager has previously uh, presented on all of the lists of offenses or statuses that would preclude a person from being able to live within a community protection zone. Uh, and we have provided uh, from the sheriff how they intend to substantiate whether a person should not be there at all. So when we get to phase two, we have already excluded from the ability to reside within the facility anyone who's not allowed to live there by state law. Uh, what we are now uh, seeking to do is to identify from the folks who are not excluded legally whom could, be, could reside within the facility in a way that uh, the, the services available there can meet their needs. 
Um, and then uh, we are seeking to do that in a way that accounts for racial disproportionality and the effects that that has on the system and, and the types of, of reporting that we might get uh, through criminal background checks. And we're also doing this in a way that accounts for, uh, several council members talked about the barriers to entry that might be present that could prevent somebody from seeking services or successfully accessing services should they seek them. Uh, what I've listed here, uh, just to get to the, the details, um, after having gone through uh, phase one, what we at the county would be able to do is to take advantage of information that we have available to us in the form of three databases for sure, uh, and then when warranted, a fourth database. And I wanna go into some detail and then uh, would be happy to answer any questions, but can also tell you what they find. So the first one is the Homeless Management Information System. Uh, this is a system that's going to show the usage of shelter uh, and supportive housing of a person in King County uh, going back as far as we have kept that data. Uh, this information will be useful for us to identify how many, how many times a person has resided in shelter, where they've resided in shelter, the duration of stay of their shelter, and then provides the ability to then follow up with a provider if we saw a pattern that we wanted to learn more about. Um, this is not available, or information that would be available in a criminal background check. Uh, the second place that we can go into is a King County developed system, we call it the, the core system, but this is uh, by individual level information on any person who is using a mental illness, drug dependency, sales tax service, a veteran seniors and human services service, uh, best starts for kids funded service, uh, and our developmental disabilities and early childhood support services. And so this is a broader human services database where we're able to see whether a person has been using services, which services they've been using for what those, they've been using those services and what their outcomes in those services have been. Uh, the, this is again, information that you wouldn't pick up in a, in a criminal background check. Uh, and then I think third and perhaps most uh, effectively for our purposes here is what we call ECLS, but is this the behavioral health database. Uh, so uh, this is all of the Medicaid and crisis uh, uh, services that we provide at King County, uh, things that would show up here that you wouldn't see somewhere else or that might provide additional detail. Uh, if a person has been contacted for involuntary detention because they present uh, grave harm to themselves or others, we will see that in this database. We won't uh, just see the fact that there has been an incident and we won't just see the fact that there have been 12 of them or 42 of them or one of them. Uh, we actually have the ability to examine a person's case notes. Uh, we have the ability to examine the provider's sort of assessment of what has happened. And this is a practice that we actually employed when we were providing emergency housing during the COVID pandemic for people at isolation and quarantine facilities that this department stood up and operated in partnership with public health uh, at, uh, in several cities across the county. And so it's something that we've practiced and used and I think used to good effect. Uh, the reason I think that this is a particularly important database, uh, a person who has been contacted 12 times, and I'm speaking hypothetically here, uh, for involuntary treatment, what might show up on their criminal background track is trespass. Um, and trespass is not within the realm of things that we would be looking for as a purpose you know, to, to exclude somebody from housing or even really uh, to dig deeper into generally if we saw it on a criminal background check. But what we're able to see is the question that you would ask next, we're already there. Um, you know, what other sort of information do we want to know about a particular person so that we can design treatment 
that could be effective for them and make a decision about whether the facility itself is suitable for them. And I think it's that, it's that we're already at the next level of information which is really important here. When we take a look at a criminal background check, uh, we are aware that we are prohibited based solely on a person's offense from eliminating them for eligibility from housing under fair housing. So if I looked someone up, I could not say that people categorically with this particular offense are not eligible for housing. Um, what you would have to do is do an individualized assessment by getting to information that's not actually available within criminal records. And I think that's what uh, is available in our behavioral health database in particular, where we can get in and, and see what types of interactions a person has had with the system, what types of treatment they have uh, sought, uh, what other clinicians have already decided has been effective for that person. And that is the level of individual assessment that the fair housing regime at the federal level uh, asks of us. And I think that's something that we have the ability to just get straight to. One of the questions is, well, why not do a criminal background check anyways? And I think this is an important part, and it gets to this issue of disproportionality in particular. The use of a criminal background check is not without costs. The criminal background check done by third parties, first of all, is not something that we are aware of as standardized in any particular way. So third-party background checks operate in many different ways, accessing many different databases in a way that's not sort of routine or consistent depending on who you use. They are, in all cases, though, drawing information from a criminal legal system that we are aware contains profound disproportionalities. It is not coincidental that the same rates of disproportionality that we see in police uh, interactions, in arrests, and incarcerations also show up in housing. That is the system as it exists now. And so what we seek to do is to avoid using or invoking the disproportionality that we believe is inherent in many third-party criminal background checks, but to still get the information that anybody would need to arrive at that same interest that we all share, which is the safe operation of the facility for its residents and for the community uh, that it is within. And so uh, that is uh, the process in a nutshell. I haven't really gone into the rest of uh, the personal interaction that takes place. So having done the suitability screening, uh, we would then sit down, consider any other information that might you know, be presented with a particular person. And as Deputy uh, Manager, City Manager Lopez has pointed out, 65% of the residents will have come from other uh, referral, referral sources within the city of Kirkland, some of which will have sort of already uh, done some version of an assessment of the person before they refer them on. Uh, we would then have a clinician sit down, and I think this is the, the last point that I would like to make is, is, as a practical matter, um, you gotta sit down face to face with the person when you make these assessments. Um, and so when clinicians sit down with all of the information uh, that we have available through database, there's also a personal interaction and a personal uh, judgment that is happening from trained professionals in the moment who are asking this question of whether or not this person is suitable for the facility and whether the services available at the facility are suitable for the person. Um, and what we seek to do is to arm them with information that allows them to use their professional judgment in minimizing the amount of potentially biased information or information that might trigger biases within them uh, as they're making that determination. I'd be happy to answer any questions uh, members of the council may have. Council, Councilmember Nixon. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, well, I, I appreciate uh, you taking the time to come out here to, uh, to talk about this. 
Um, my observation uh, is that the whole screening process depends on the assertion that the phase one screening process, as laid out in the sheriff's letter and as you talked about it tonight, would prevent sex offenders from being in the facility. And, uh, the, but the letter says that they will only check databases of registered sex offenders and that will not prevent unregistered sex offenders from getting into the facility. Um, you can only do that by doing a criminal, general criminal background check, determining if they were convicted of an offense that w for which they should have registered as a sex offender and perhaps failed to do so. And so I'm, uh, I'm concerned that in, in the, the last page of the sheriff's letter, it says that um, we won't detect that situation unless, and I'll quote, information is received that an individual may be required to register as a sex offender. But it doesn't say where that information comes from, how someone would provide that information. It, it's, just, it's just really vague. Um, I mean, they could have been a convicted rapist come here from another state, fail to register as a sex uh, offender, and because we don't check for people who failed to register, they would be admitted. Am I understanding that correctly? Uh, I, I do think that there are, uh, having spoken uh, with the sergeant at the sheriff's office who uh, wrote the letter, I can provide a little bit more detail. And, and I do think first, uh, council member, that uh, towards the end you identified, I believe that that passage refers to out of state uh, uh, folks as opposed to folks within the state of Washington, uh, where a person uh, in the, the registration requirement, uh, and this is something that Sergeant Escobar helped me understand, uh, is not necessarily as you would intuitively think. So it is not that a person must register in order to be on the registry. The registry is the list of people who must register. If they fail to register, a warrant will be issued for their arrest. Uh, Sergeant Escobar mentioned that that would happen within three days, uh, and then mentioned if it were an out-of-state person who was a member of the same national registry that all uh, different states in the, in the United States are drawing off of, that they have a, a norm and in, in, uh, interstate practice that they notify each other of the warrants that they are issuing in other states for folks who have failed to register. So, um, I, I don't know, Councilmember, if that gets uh, precisely to the question you're asking, but it doesn't require a person to register, and in fact, a person's failure to register when they are expected to will trigger, or, trigger a warrant for their arrest. That, in fact, is, is very helpful, and I appreciate that explanation. Thank you. Uh, Councilmember Pascal. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. <clears throat> Mr. Floor, thanks for spending your evening with us. I know it's, it can be tough, um, and also, Appreciate the added details that, that the county has provided. Uh, it's, it's helpful. Uh, I'm still trying to consume it all and understand the screening process. Uh, I just have a couple questions. It might they might be things that I missed. I I wasn't clear on who actually would be performing the screening, the the phase one, phase two. Is that the provider? Is that the uh, contractor? Or is that the county? Uh, who at the county? Is it the sheriff's office? I, I wasn't clear on who actually does that. 
Absolutely. So uh, by the terms of the agreement as we have drafted it, uh, the county is responsible for all of it to happen. Um, as far as the distribution of duties, phase one, uh, it is the sheriff's office that will administer the, the search of the sex offense registry. Uh, once we get to phase two, the first part of it that I've described, the accessing the databases, that's something that we'll have to do at the Department of Community and Human Services. Our data sharing agreement won't allow us to, to expose non-county employees to the information. Uh, further down in the document, when we get to four and five, uh, these are the sort of in-person clinical interactions that a person would have after having looked at what the databases have to say. Those would be done by the provider. Um, but at the end of the day, the county, uh, as the signatory to the agreement, would be ultimately accountable and responsible to make sure that all of those things happened. And then is there any, in, in any of the information that's been prepared, is there any way that the city can monitor that screening occurs as stated or as agreed upon, or how, how does that work? Uh, there is, uh, there are within the agreement uh, passages that allow the city at any point to ask the county to uh, document specifically, you know, which databases have you been using, um, what have you found as a result of that. Um, so I think that that's one mechanism. Uh, Councilmember, I do not believe that there is anything in the agreement if the question is, can the you know, what within the agreement would allow the city council to say, have, show me exactly what you did for Leo Floor. Um, so I'm not sure if that's what you're asking. Uh, and one thing that we are controlling for here is, uh, I've described to you a pretty extensive use of data. Um, it is subject to multiple regimes that limit our, our use or require us to use them. The HIPAA, the sort of HIPAA regime is the minimum necessary rule that I did make mention in the slide. So. Um, it may be the case that uh, we cannot uh, document or report out with specificity the particular findings uh, in a person's treatment history, for example. Uh, but I think if the question was, have you done a check on a particular person, our answer would be yes, and we have committed to do a check on every person who goes into the facility. Um, and to the extent that it's useful to, to recover that ground, phase one, Everybody upon consideration for entry would do phase one. We have then additionally agreed, and this is something that EPS actually uh, had asked for, to recheck everyone already in the facility in phase one annually. And then we are agreeing to check every prospective resident prior to entry in this phase two process that I'm depicting here. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's really helpful. I think my question is just more about, you know, over time, is ensuring that that the process is continues, you know, as staff and things change, you know, that it just continues, and it's 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 automatic. Um, and how do we just ensure that? Um, and then the the last the last question I had, this gets back. You know, I just don't know enough about all of this, but what it sounds like hearing you describe the screening process is that you're using a lot of of really of of information that we ultimately wouldn't get from a criminal background check and, and information that's going to be obviously more helpful to um, the people that will be living there and and the people that will be working there uh, 
I guess what I don't what I don't clearly understand is what information would would we not get that a criminal background check would provide? And it sounds like the only thing is maybe out of state criminal records. Is that? And I shouldn't say only. I should say um, is that is that pr the primary missing information that wouldn't be available? Um. I'll make an assumption to answer the question, but I, I do think that the, the first point is, is again, there's not really a sort of standardized 30, third party criminal background check. And so depending on what third party one goes with, sort of you'd get different uh, searches that they do. Uh, but I think if I make an assumption that they're checking you know, publicly available criminal records, uh, what we would not be capturing in here is uh, the list of, of you know, criminal information, interactions, convictions that, at no, that don't have anything to do with a person's behavior such that they came into contact with the behavioral health system um, or to the extent that that stuff's not included in any of our uh, either homeless information <laughs> or the, that core uh, reporting engine. Uh, I do uh, think that that is an important piece of information to consider the value of, um, and this is the Department of Housing and Urban Development's uh, analysis when they talk about how to use criminal background checks in a way that is compliant with fair housing, is that whether those past offenses without any of this other information are in fact effectively predictive of what a person will do is the sort of question that I think a lot of folks are contending with. Um, and is that value of the information, and, and there must be some value to that information, I'm not here to say that there's not, is that value proportionate to the potential harm uh, when we account for the fact that the criminal justice system, again, is containing uh, a set of biases that have resulted in just empirical disproportionality consistently over time. And so I think it's a balancing uh, that's important there, but you're correct that uh, Nothing in the behavioral health system, for example, will consult the court's registry in the state of South Dakota if somebody had a, a conviction there. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for confirming that. So thank you. Uh, Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, well, thank you, Director Flora, for being here with us tonight. I really appreciate the level of detail that you brought to us tonight. I was not thrilled with the level of detail coming in, in our before tonight. Um, and you've really addressed those gaps, um, specifically in the, um, the screening for um, registered sex offender background. The two gaps that I had heard in the past was, you know, that it, um, folks, as Councilmember Nixon alluded to or, or asked about earlier, who did not opt in, who were not compliant in registering, and then sex offenses in other states. And you've addressed both of those. The, the letter from the Sheriff's Office has addressed both of those. So thank you for that. I really appreciate that. Um, and I really appreciate the details in the phase two as well. I really appreciate the thoughtfulness of that and the thoughtful approach um, that you're taking with that background check to really look out for what's best for everyone involved and make sure that this program is a success. Um, so thank you for that. It not only meets the legal requirements, it goes above and beyond, not just what's best for the residents there, but as we've discussed, the residents um, in the surrounding community and the concerns that we've heard from the surrounding community. So thank you so much for that. Um, I do have a couple of questions on your phase two suitability screening. I share your concerns with wanting to minimize any sort of burdens to folks um, who are in need of uh, permanent supportive housing. 
Can you um, talk a little bit about what the release of information would be like and what that process would be like from a potential resident's perspective? And then also, since you're here, um, was hoping you could perhaps address my earlier question on asking residents um, to self-assess as well as assess the facility and their, their opinions and experiences on that. I'd be happy to. Um, so the, I think of the release of information really in two ways. One is there is a uh, awareness that we want to make sure that anybody seeking housing has of what their information will be used for. Um, and I think part of that is just a sort of basic expectation that all of us are entitled to that we understand what is happening with our data. Um, there's a countervailing pressure that, that that requirement to disclose, even just to say, like, yes, you're allowed to look at things, could in and of itself become a barrier. Um, many housing programs do not do uh, background checks for that reason. Some do. Um, and so I think, you know, there's a range of practice. Um, the having sort of address the what's going on with your information data. The second piece of it is, in order to fully use data in the way that we're describing, uh, it does require a person to agree to that. Um, and so, uh, you know, criminal background check by comparison requires no uh, uh, waiver of, of confidentiality or, or other entitlement to privacy, but the resulting information is sort of blunt um, and not precise because of that. Uh, what we are seeking to do is to inform a potential resident, this is what we'll use the information for, this is the purpose of phase two suitability, uh, and when they sign that document, they, allow, they would allow us to use the information for that purpose. Um, it, it's actually a pretty profound responsibility uh, that we would be taking on at that point to access that level of information and use it in a way that the, the client understands. Um, to your second, uh, or really your first question, Councilmember, uh, qualitative data is a huge part of what we're doing, and it really will show up in two ways. The way that you asked the question originally was really around a person's self-assessment of how they are doing. That very much is the language, and to me gets to the art of case management and, and what providers do. Um, much of what they will be doing in a building like this or behavioral health treatment generally is goal setting and then assessment of where a person is relative to those goals. Uh, there are several sort of models for that, motivational interviewing being one of them. Uh, but that for sure happens, that is, that is what case management is, where do you think you are, what do you think you need, what could help you uh, be successful, and that is the mode of treatment um, that is most effective for most people. Uh, the second piece of it is uh, sort of program-wide, what will we do with qualitative data? Uh, there is a requirement imposed upon us by the county level implementation plan that we do a full program evaluation by the sixth year of the initiative. Uh, so that is a place where I would expect robust, both quantitative and qualitative data to be both gathered and then used and, and analyzed. Um, and then I can just speak as, as a matter of practice, uh, annual reporting is a place where we try very hard to both capture the raw quantitative data how many people, but you know, what is the composition, what have their outcomes been, and we spend a lot of time also just interviewing people. How is this working for you? Um, what would you change? How has this you know, been beneficial to you? Um, and so that, that information tends to show up in our annual reports, uh, and I uh, we do have a requirement to report specifically to the city of Kirkland on at least an annual basis and would include that information there. Uh, thank you, Deputy Mayor Arnold. 
Thank you, Madam Mayor, and thank you, Director Floor. I really appreciate the time that has gone in, both in, in helping us understand this and uh, the discussions with staff. I totally agree with the direction we're going with an individualized assessment and the personal involvement with the applicant. Some of the details that are in the city plan that are not in the county plan talk about how the applicant gets involved and, and, and can address any concerns. It's great to hear that you're, you're talking about that. I agree with the issue of how homelessness has been criminalized previously and disproportionate, and that's got to color the information we have here. Uh, I appreciate the details of, and the transparency of the process that we're talking about, but I do have some questions. One of the concerns would be that um, folks have brought up in comments is beyond the people that are prohibited by state law because of sexual offenses from being housed in this, um, what about folks that um, might have records for other offenses? How would they show up in the medical data that you're talking about? Uh, you mentioned trust. Some issues may show up as trespass. How would somebody with um, a record of assault show up in the medical databases that you're talking about? Because I think the concern is if there's information that isn't showing up in the databases that you're talking about. Absolutely. Um, first, I, I do think you know, credibility demands that the behavioral health database is not a criminal records database. And so there is not perfect overlap between those two. And I think that's just factual. And I, I owe it to you to be plain about that. Um, it, it's not the tenor of your question, uh, Mr. Deputy Mayor, but, but just to continue to invoke the, the concern around criminal records, again, is that they do capture uh, the fact that some folks are over or disproportionately enforced upon, they also miss a lot. Um, there are uh, recent and semi-local examples that uh, if a person uh, is of a different demographic or perhaps a different means, uh, they will not show up in a criminal record um, in the same way. And so the, the, the issue, and, and what I hope to present here is not that a criminal record is useless or that it is inherently and always inaccurate. It's that it is an imprecise tool, both as a way to effectively predict what a person will do based on what they've done. Because um, again, a person who uh, has a previous conviction that you know, qualifies them for incarceration, for example, will have been incarcerated and satisfied that incarcerated incarceration and then be back out in the community at this point. So we're not talking about people who have not yet, quote unquote, done their time. Um, and then we will empirically overcapture people of some characteristics, and I'm so I'm not being indirect, race first and foremost, but also disability. And we will undercapture others, and the reliance on that criminal record, therefore, is not really actually an effective way to determine whether a person will be a suitable tenant or whether a person is likely to reoffend. We believe that the behavioral health information is a better. Uh, a way to identify whether a person continues to have behaviors that we would be concerned about. And I think it's important to, to note that none of these is perfect. Um, given, given the imprecision that you're talking about, why not a superset? Why not use both inf um, sources of information? Uh, the systemic bias that you talk about in the background check, couldn't that be addressed by 
just how the operator is using the um, information? It, it could, uh, Mr. Deputy Mayor, and that's just not what we see reflected in our community right now. Um, police are aware of the fact that there is racial disproportionality and it persists. Homelessness providers are aware of the fact that there is racial disproportionality and it persists. Housing providers are aware of the fact that there is racial disproportionality and it persists. And I think what animates that is the increasing understanding that it's not even conscious on some level. Um, implicit bias is the way that we talk about this a lot. But it, we will not break that cycle without taking steps that we have not yet taken. And uh, I stand before you not, you know, there's a risk of, of almost coming off as sanctimonious. Uh, the King County Council has directed through the Health Through Housing Implementation Plan that I have two primary goals. One is to provide up to 1,600 people with permanent supportive housing in Health Through Housing facilities, and the other is to reduce the racial ethnic disproportionality exhibited within the population of people who experience chronic homelessness in King County. Both of those are statutory and now encoded in the code requirements of this program. And so that, that's the reason why I, I emphasize that, that point of analysis in particular. A couple of details given some of the discussion that my colleagues have, have um, brought out. Um, from Councilmember Nixon's question, let's say somebody um, had relocated, has an arrest warrant because they haven't updated the location and, and registered uh, as a sex offender. How does that get serviced in the process that you're, you're outlining? Um, it this is a thing where I am now recounting the, the sheriff's description, uh, and specifically the, the Sergeant Escobar. You know, I did not talk to Sheriff Cole Tindall about this specifically. Um, uh, it is the fact that when a person who has the registration requirement doesn't register, that the system that all law enforcement agencies are using um, is, you know, sort of automates and, and says that we need to issue the warrant for the person and that they communicate by, uh, you know, across state lines as a matter of cooperation. I don't have a more comprehensive answer about how the sheriffs uh, operate on that, Mr. Deputy Mayor, but would be happy to follow up with the sheriff on it. Well, I was thinking more of making sure that an instance like that is, is um, uh, flagged and, and being, being able to be considered as part of this this process, um, because part of the concern I've got is that mm -hmm. it sounds like that uh, King County is generating a plethora of information through the databases that you're talking about, but those are for people that have interacted with King County. And so how are we handling folks uh, that may not have a history with um, MID, Best Starts for Kids, Veterans and Human Services, levy all these uh, other uh, shelter interactions that you've talked about that are in the county databases. Um, wondering how, um, how to deal with folks that don't have that history with the county, because that's where I, I think the, at least going in with the eyes open, the operator could make a, a decision independent of that, but why are we not looking at broader sets of uh, information? In those cases, I think, um, Mr. Deputy Mayor, it's it's again um, as we are applying the sort of and really, you know, uh, to to be respectful of the council's role as you are applying the the balancing of of interests here. 
Um, I do think that it would be possible to to consult every database. Um, again, some of those databases may or may not accurately sort of capture or predict what a person may do, um, and that is the subject of some research right now. Um, and that's the Department of Housing and Urban Development's point, is that criminal behavior and criminal records are actually not strongly predictive of a person's ability to, uh, to, to be a tenant in, in housing. Um, and at some point, we will uh, be expending significant effort in asking significant disclosure of a person such that uh, we will begin to turn away the folks that we are uh, seeking. Um, and so there's a, there's a balancing in here. I've attempted to, to capture that balancing. And again, um, what we are seeking to do is, is skip the step of the criminal background check, knowing that you would have to get to this step that we're in anyways in order to do the individualized assessment to avoid categorically excluding a person based solely on the nature of their offense. And I totally agree with your position that we're not looking to um, exclude anybody based on that offense. It's just information that I look at it as information to feed the individualized assessment. Uh, I also recognize the point you're making that the act of um, requiring uh, somebody to consent uh, may be an issue where um, I, I think that's why the city's got um, third-party background checks as part of our, our proposal um, in the case where someone did not want to uh, consent. So uh, I appreciate the information. Thanks. Councilor Curtis. Thank you, and thank you, Director Floor. This is a good conversation. I, I just want to back up a little bit because when we, we talk about these res future residents, we're not collecting them off the street and bringing them to per permanent supportive housing. These are individuals that are already in the system, and so we already have a quite a, an information about them, and that this is the next step on the continuum. So again, if there's someone on the street, they're going somewhere else before they go to this permanent supportive housing, so we will know a lot about them. And I'm sitting here remembering it has been a year since we had our town hall at Eastside Prep, and one of the things that we assured people was, we know these people. We are not putting unknown individuals in this housing. We know these people, and what I like about um, your screening process is you're showing the systems that are in place that we know these people and we have evaluated these people. And we do something very similar with our mental health professionals. They have databases. They are in contact with individuals repeatedly over time and understand how to approach that individual, what kind of assessment they need, what is the next place for them. So um, I am becoming very comfortable with your system because again, it's proving that we are using the information that we have to make sure that this is the best home for um, the people that we are bringing to our permanent supportive housing. So thank you. Councilmember Black. Well, I'm glad I waited to be the last one. Okay. <laughs> of course, Madam Mayor. Thank you. Um, at the end of my, uh, uh, just a couple brief comments and then I may have a question for the, it might be for the deputy city manager. Um, 
and it's going to relate to sort of how we want to proceed. So if you're thinking about that while I um, make a couple comments. So um, really appreciate um, Director Floor, you coming out here and doing this presentation. I really appreciate the comments from my colleagues. They've um, managed, to, they've uh, done a really nice job of, of uh, sussing out some of the, some further details. I mean, you brought a lot of details to the, tonight. Uh, the questions, probing questions that my colleagues have asked have, have sussed out a lot of other additional details, and I really appreciate that, and that's one of the reasons I'm happy to be going last. Um, you know, one of the things that is sort of becomes clear the more time we spend with this issue, if there's, there is no perfect system. I think maybe I'm even stealing words from you a few minutes ago. There's not going to be a perfect system. In the face of that, so the, uh, any system we use is going to have certain blind spots, um, just inherently. We're going to be, we're going to have to make choices. The system's going to have blind spots. And the question then for me becomes, given the balancing of the interests, um, given the fact that there is no perfect system, that one's going to have blind spot and one's not, um, I really want to center on, um, you know, the, the real, the core of the problem we're trying to solve. Um, and it's very unlikely that I'm going to get through this without getting emotional. Because <laughs> that is what I do. Um, everybody, my, my colleagues all know that. <clears throat> but I will try. At the, end of, at the end of the day, that what we're, you know, the most important uh, problem we're trying to solve is um, we're trying to solve uh, we're, <coughs> we're trying to save the lives <coughs> of the um, of the people who are homeless, um, experiencing homelessness, including I think it was 270 individuals who lost their life last year. Um, there are a lot of potential problems. There are a lot of perhaps unintended consequences. Um, whatever those might be, we have done an amazing job as a city, as a county. Um, as staff, um, putting programs and procedures and policies in place to deal with issues as they arrive. But the one issue that <clears throat> the one issue we absolutely know exists um, is the current loss of life. So I keep my eye on that. And the thing about the system, imperfect as it might be, with certain blind spots, the one thing about the system that the county is proposing is that it centers on those lives. Um, and what is going to help those individuals be successful? Um, the other thing, <clears throat> this will be hopefully a little less emotional, um, the other thing I focus on is uh, a consistent issue that we have in our society of placing barriers on people's ability to reenter society. And I'm not talking just for, I'm not talking about entering this facility. I'm talking about people who have been, who've, who've uh, made mistakes, committed crimes, been prosecuted, have done time, and their ability to reenter society without having <clears throat> whatever felony conviction they they had for the time for which they served become a life sentence. <clears throat> I 
you know, it's the it's the fair housing consider it's the fair housing um, consideration, um, and you know we had a really powerful town hall right here in Kirkland, uh, sponsored by our Chamber of Commerce, just a few months ago, with a panel of individuals who had um, all committed felonies, who'd all done their time, um, and I just, jeez. Uh, I was wrong. I'm not going to get through it without getting emotional. Um, the one thing that those people who've had that life experience emphasize over and over is to give them another chance. We talk about the disparate treatment. We talk about disparate treatment with, a, with respect to race and disability in the criminal justice system. One of the leading areas of disparate treatment is people who have experienced a criminal background. They are one of the largest groups of folks with which our society does not treat fairly by we end up imposing a life sentence on them um, of varying degrees, despite the fact that they've served their time. This is fundamental to me. So I have a fundamental issue. I'm not, I appreciate Deputy Mayor uh, Arnold did a really nice job of describing how the background check, criminal background check could be part of an overall assessment and not necessarily excluding. But when I'm faced with a choice between Two systems that aren't perfect, one of which has blind spots and one of which doesn't, I'm not going to choose the one that continues to exasperate the problem we have in society with holding people to an impossible standard for the rest of their lives and for setting up barriers to their reentry to society by using their criminal background as a way of excluding them. So, and one of the things I really like, I just want to, to wrap up, one of the things I really like about the county system is it's focused on behavioral health uh, 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 experience as the leading indicator of future behavior. That is so much more important to me than anything you're gonna find in a criminal background check. Despite the fact that a criminal background check can serve a purpose. And as I mentioned, I think Deputy Mayor Arnold described that uh, very well and I appreciate his comments on that. So I apologize to my colleagues for mutter, you know, muddling through that, um, those comments. And what I really want to ask now is for the dep deputy city manager, like how, how, what's your plan for how we proceed on this issue? I think this would be helpful for us, the public, and also for my colleagues. We now have, we've all made our comments on this particular issue, like how exactly do you propose to proceed? And related question, you have received some helpful feedback, I think, uh, both from the public earlier and from the council, um, is, is have you heard anything that you, you think you might like? If we were to proceed uh, with the county's suitability screening, is have you heard elements of that that you think can be built into that that would address some of the feedback we've received? Councilmember Black, can I, can oh. I ask that? If I stop. <laughs> um, before you answer that question, I would like to, to finish. Councilmember Nixon still had. Oh, sure, you, absolutely. Right? I pass. You pass? Okay. Well, then I would just like to finish up, um, and I will just take a moment with this 
Um, thank you, Leo, for this. Um, you changed my mind. Um, and you convinced me with real data that um, the system that you're proposing is going to get us the best clinical and living outcomes for the people that we want to help. Um, I am moved by the comments from all of my colleagues up here, um, but your passion for this is, is really a very beautiful thing to, to observe. And I truly believe that what, what we want to get to from here is, is a facility that uses mechanisms like you've described tonight to place people, to begin a case management strategy that will actually get some people out and establish a permanent home for other people. So thank you for that. And with that, I'll turn it back to my <coughs> finish his question for um, Deputy, Deputy City Manager. Thank Thanks, you. Madam Mayor. And Deputy City Manager, if you need any clarification for what my questions were, let me know. Well, I think the, <clears throat> the short answer is our recommendation tonight was that we present you with the information you need. It was not a, our intention was not that tonight is a decision night. So what we would suggest as a staff is that between now and the 21st, which we had projected as a decision night, that we meet individually with the council members. There's a lot in front of you, all the documents now we think are coming to a mature stage where we could meet with you to answer any individual questions you have about some of the specific items. And one of them could be, um, we think we've, we've synthesized everything we can between the two proposals. I think Deputy Mayor Arnold kind of articulated the, the clear line between them, the reliance on the mental health system versus the criminal justice our recommendation would be that we do those individual interview uh, individual meetings so that you can ask us questions any specific questions about the vo volumes of um, documents you have and that we come back on the 21st with a decision any further discussion uh deputy mayor thank you madam mayor uh, as we look at this going forward um, I really appreciate the, the, the perspectives from my colleagues here. This is um, uh, definitely a situation where um, I think we're discussing this thoroughly and, and learning a lot from different people's perspectives. Um, Councilmember Curtis really um, tied things together to say uh, there's a, a population that we know and we want to help and that we can bring off, off the street. Um, one of the questions that would be that I have that would be helpful moving forward is um, uh, understanding to the extent that we know that the applicants for this are people that are in the system. Because the question to some of the things that I was probing with the county was understanding how we make sure that these are people that we know. Um, so uh, understanding that uh, piece of information would be um, uh, would be helpful moving forward. Um, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Jim. Thank you very much, ma'am. Thank you. Okay. With that, I think we're going to take a 15-minute break. And we will be back at...
Let's do 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock. Yeah. Okay, we're live now. Thank you. We are back in session. Recording in progress. <clears throat> we are back in session following a short break, and we are at uh, the next item in our agenda, which is our legislative update. City Manager. Okay, thank you, Madam Mayor. So here to give a legislative update number four is Diana Hart, our Government Affairs Manager. Uh, good evening, Council. Um, we are quickly moving our way through session um, with this, uh, update number four now, um, kicking off with our legislative calendar. Um, today is day 58 of the 105-day session, meaning we are officially more than halfway done. Tomorrow is the House of Origin cutoff, uh, meaning any policy bills that were introduced in the House needs to be voted out of the House, and any bill introduced in the Senate needs to be out of the Senate by tomorrow at 5 p.m. During your last meeting, we saw a lot of bills die after the first policy cutoff. We saw an even larger chunk die with the fiscal cutoff um, later that week. So of the 1,108 that survived policy cutoff, only 368 bills survived fiscal cutoff. However, there are a good number of bills in that um, dead pile that could easily be designated as necessarily necessary to implement the budget and may come back to life later in session. Of the 325 bills that Kirkland has been tracking, 180 are still alive. We'll likely see a big drop again um, after tomorrow's cutoff. Some of the policies that have not survived since our last meeting include policies around tree ordinances, housing benefit districts, consolidating local permit review processes, tenant protections, jaywalking, no right turn on red, net ecological gain, responsible bidder criteria, and missing middle housing. Um, as always, these bills can have companions or different versions that are still moving, and the NTIB designation can bring many different policies back to life. Um, as we're talking calendar, I do wanna flag a handful of upcoming town halls that are being hosted by our delegation. The 45th Legislative District um, is having a telephone town hall on March 16th at 6, an in-person town hall on March 18th from 1130, 1130 to 1 at Elwitt. Um, the 1st Legislative District is having an in-person town hall the next day on March 19th at Cascadia, and the 48th is having a telephone town hall on the March 23rd at 6.30. Looking at how things are going for us this session, um, as always, I'll start things off with our housing-focused bills. Senator Cooter's version of the ADU bill was scheduled for a public hearing in the House Committee on Housing this Thursday. However, the House recently just canceled that 8 a.m. meeting to give their members a little bit of a break after all the late nights they've been having. Um, as I mentioned a little earlier before we came back to the meeting, the um, House just reconvened um, after a several hour break for caucus meetings and they'll likely go well into the wee morning hours before finishing off their work tomorrow. So they'll likely wanna give themselves a couple hours of um, for sleep and uh, then we'll get back to the committee session and we anticipate that the public hearing for this bill will be rescheduled for next week. Representative Kloba's version of the ADU bill has been pulled from rules and still awaits a floor vote with several amendments ready to continue refining the policy if it does move forward. 
and Representative Chop's REIT bill is still in the fiscal committee, but as it raises revenue for the state and local governments, it is definitely a policy that could be easily designated as NTIB if the legislature chooses. I do you want to flag that the covenant homeownership account bill that I shared an update on during your last meeting did move out of the house, so that may show where the legislature is putting their efforts this year. Uh, the slide looks a little light this round as we don't have as many opportunities to formally act in support when the legislature is in floor mode. We'll see an increase in opportunities when they turn back to committees on Thursday. Um, the bills that we did sign in support or will sign into support later this week include um, for housing, we have unrelated occupancy limits, utility connection charge waivers, ADUs, and condo liability reform. And under sustainability, we have compostable product usage and updating the state's climate response strategy. Um, and then a quick flags for some discussion. Um, as always, the bill tracker's stated position in the packet is the recommended position by the legislative work group and is considered acknowledged by council after this discussion unless you want to pull any out for further conversation. Um, since the packet was posted, the work group did change a couple positions on bills based on uh, subject matter expert feedback on um, some amendments as things are changing. So we'll, um, I'll, I'll flag those for future um, conversations at council when those positions do change. Um, a quick update on three big bills that I know are of interest to council, starting with Blake. Senate Bill 5536 is the primary vehicle anticipated this session to address the um, Blake decision that came out a couple of years ago. Um, this bill passed on a near party line vote out of the Senate with continued amendments with every step along the way. We definitely expect more changes as it goes, but assume that the knowing possession of controlled substances will be a gross misdemeanor with off ramps from jail sanctions and criminal record pass for those that accept except substance use disorder treatment options. Vehicular Pursuits has two primary bills that are still holding on, uh, 1363 to make changes now and 1586 to create a work group to make changes in the future. Um, both have yet to be heard on the floor and the R's attempted some procedural motions this morning in the House to pull 1363 from rules, but that attempted fail. The D's are split on the bill, and especially considering that Senator Dingra has publicly stated that she will not hear a vehicular pursuit bill this um, year in her committee. These policies face a particularly difficult road to passage. And then on the missing middle bill, Bateman's 1110 was heard late last night with some further amendments um, and did pass off the floor with a fairly strong bipartisan uh, vote. One of the key differences of this bill from years past is the requirement on contiguous cities. So previously, a city's population alone is what determined what requirements the, the um, city faced. The proposal as it moves this year has an additional requirement for any city that is contiguous with particularly large cities. So effectively, this requires the suburbs of Seattle to be treated more similarly to the smaller cities that are contiguous Seattle. So Mercer Island and Medina and Woodway would be required to meet the same thresholds that cities of greater than 75,000 in population would be required to meet. This is obviously causing some increased concerns as some entities that were not included in those policies before are now included at the highest threshold. Um, and as with many of the higher profile bills, this will still see many changes as it moves throughout the session. 
Um, but as this is considered a priority for all four of the caucuses, it is expected to go quite far this session. So we'll keep tabs on it as it changes and um, share feedback as um, it is helpful. And with that, turn things over to you and happy to answer any questions that you have. Okay. Uh, Councilmember Curtis. Thank you, Madam Mayor. <laughs> um, so thank you, Diana. And thank you to the legislative work group, group team, Diana, Carly, Brian and Brian, our lobbyists, Mayor Sweet, and Councilmember Black. I just think it's been a great team. Everybody's moving in the same direction. Uh, the council members are eager to take that 8 a.m. testimony. So um, we're working really well together. Um, so a couple things I just wanted to add. The budgets are going to be released March 24 and 26. We do have strong champions on our capital request, so I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic and hopeful. And the other thing I just wanted to share, there are a number of zoning bills, and our subject matter experts are going to now start to look at those no longer in a silo, but how they impact each other and um, how they will reconcile or not reconcile, and we will start make, working with our legislators on any fixes that need to happen. So, thank you. Any further discussion? Okay, then that, thanks, thank you, Diana. Go home. <laughs> um, that takes us to item uh, D, and, which is resolution 5579. City manager. Okay, so this is a technical fix to our um, resolution that was related to the parks um, sponsorship program policy and also to the underlying policy beneath it that's an administrative policy. So uh, Darcy Eilers, our city attorney, is going to have a very short presentation on this and we're looking to swap out the resolution. I feel like Kevin would um, would berate me a little bit if I kept being called the city attorney, so assistant city attorney. <laughs> that was the second time, so I thought I should say something. That's fine. Okay. Um, Kurt uh, led that up. I'll just, um, I'm going to pop up a slide. I think um, you all had an email earlier that showed these track changes, but we wanted to make it really clear what the changes were from the resolution that was proposed resolution in the packet. So um, here they are. I'll show them all in one. If you need me to open them up a little more, I have some hidden slides. Oh, because I'm showing you all of that. So there you go. Um, and as um, as you can see here, we, this just fills in a gap between those ones that are exactly $7,500 because we, um, the policy right now has uh, says ones that are less than $7,500, the deputy uh, director can um, approve, and ones that are above $7,500, city council has to approve. So we had none that were exactly $7,500. And so we um, have modified that so it's clear for the sponsorship version, and then also we'll be correcting that in the policy according to these changes. So. Here they are so that you can see the differences. See if you had any questions. Councilmember Black. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I assume you'd like me to get us started by, um, uh, I'd like to move for adoption of substitute resolution R5579. Second. Moved by Councilmember Black, seconded by Councilmember Falcone. Uh, any further discussion? Question is on the motion to approve uh, where to go? Resolution 5579. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries unanimously. Thank you very much for that brilliant presentation. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so that takes us to the end, 
to our reports. And I'll start with Councilmember Nixon. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. I don't have any regional meetings to report, but I do have a, a couple of motions related to legislative request memos. Um, five years ago, uh, we uh, moved animal control in-house from the city instead of contracting with the county. But we basically adopted the county animal control code with very minor changes. And over those five years, we've been realizing there are some things that are not perfect. And so um, I'll just do the one right now. Um, I would like to move that we request a legislative request memo from the staff on a proposal to do a, a comprehensive review of the city animal control code and propose updates to bring to the council. Second. So we move, move by Councilmember Nixon, seconded by Councilmember Curtis. Any further discussion? Uh, Councilmember Pascal. Uh, thank you, thank you, Madam Mayor. Thank you, Councilmember Nixon. I was going to raise something. Um, later, not as a legislative request memo, but this fits into this, and it was more about the program itself, the animal control program, and the fact that um, the licenses keeps declining the number of people that register their pets. Over, and even though, as I feel like, the number of pets are increasing, uh, <laughs> and the number of people are increasing, so, so it's kind of going in the opposite direction. So. Could that be part of what you're talking about too, is, is looking at the program, I, or is it just the code <clears throat> that you're interested in? Well, no, my feeling is that enforcement of the code is part of the code, and how well is enforcement working, and do we need additional ways to enforce the code? For example, for a year now, we've had a couple of German shepherds that keep getting out of, the, of their yard up in Kingsgate. And when we investigated it, the chief pointed out that we don't have an ability right now in the animal control code to say, take away somebody's animals because they're terrible owners and let them get out all the time. Um, the language says that they shall be returned. And, um, and so that's the kind of thing is that what does it take to uh, enforce the animal control code that we have? And I think what you're suggesting falls within that. Okay. Thank you. Okay, the question is on the motion to do an LRM as described by Councilmember Nixon. Moved by Councilmember Nixon, second by Councilmember Curtis. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries. Second one? Mm -hmm. All right, likewise, six years ago, uh, we passed an ordinance on short term rentals. And uh, there have been uh, continuing complaints and concerns from the community about uh, short-term rentals like Airbnb, VRBO, uh, private listings, et cetera, that fail to register with the city. They're not paying lodging tax, so they're unfairly competing with the hotels who do pay the tax. And they have like no concern for impact on the neighbors at all. And um, uh, I'd like to also do a review of the short-term rental ordinance the same way with a focus on enforcement. And how do, what can we do to improve enforcement of the short-term rental ordinance? So I'll move that we do such an LRM. Second. It's been moved by Councilmember Nixon, seconded by Councilmember Curtis to do an LRM on short-term rental enforcement. Primarily enforcement, yeah. 
Okay. Um, any further discussion? All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries. That's it. Anything else? Okay. Councilmember Black. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, nothing to report on regional. Um, um, I did want to circle back to an issue that we kind of glossed over, and that was the naming of the station area. Uh, so during our stationary discussion, one of the topics that was kind of introduced in our materials was um, guidance for the staff as to whether the council was interested in uh, sort of <laughs> giving, the, giving the station area uh, a name to sort of give it a place. And this is something we've talked about as a council before. So um, I... I don't know really how best to proceed uh, with this, but we did want, I, I didn't want to let this meeting pass without giving the staff the guidance that they uh, asked for in the, in the materials this, this week. Uh, my suggestion would be that we bring that back to a future council meeting for a short discussion, just because we know we're gonna be taking a little more time with the affordable housing issue working its way through the Planning Commission. So I think we have more time than we thought we did on that. Perfect. Um, and so we could have a more fuller discussion at a, at a future meeting. But well, I should say good enough for me. I, I, I don't know, you know if my I, colleagues all. I think we're really tired of calling it a station area plan. And even if we landed on something for the interim, something would sound better in reports and in, in <laughs> minutes and everything else. So, yeah, I'd love to see. My suggestion is maybe we could bring you two options or three, like just like here are what we think are the options based on everything we've heard or learned, and then council can make a choice. Sounds like a plan. Okay, that was it. Thank you, Councilmember Curtis. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, first, I want to thank uh, Councilmember Falcone for hosting, co-hosting with me the GMPC AHC meeting, which went really well. King County came and answered questions. AHC had a it was a very helpful discussion. I think GMPC is ready to move forward in a positive way. Um, and then last Thursday, PFEC held our last meeting, and I kept calling it five months, and someone pointed out to me that we've actually been meeting together for six months. Um, the process was respectful and robust, and as you can imagine, 44 people had very divergent opinions. Um, the group worked really hard to come forward with a uh, majority consensus. Um, and they continually recalibrated on what would pass and how do we provide something for everyone. So the majority agreement is to go to the ballot this fall with a recommendation of at least one aquatic and recreation center plus five top elements, which were a subset of the year-round restrooms, green loop trail priorities, new sports courts, youth and teen programming, and increased lifeguarding. We did not reach a majority on the funding mechanism, both, both the, the type or the length of the funding mechanism. We also did not reach a majority on the size of the ballot measure, the location of the aquatic and recreation center, and how large the recreation center would be. Um, and in addition, a couple members, a few members were supportive of, of at least two facilities. So, council will receive an update at our next meeting. Um, with, uh, including a strategy of best ways to go forward. One of the things we're talking about is gathering community input to inform um, future discussions, and PFEC is prepared to meet again in May after we've reached out to the public. Um, and again, I say it repeatedly, but I cannot thank our 44 members and Parks and Community staff for all the hard work that they did on this. 
Um, and then I had something else. No, that was it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Council Member Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, well, I'm glad Councilmember Curtis went first because thank you for your summary of the joint SEA caucus meetings of the um, GMPC and AHC. I agree. I think it went really well. I think it was very productive. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens in your next GMPC meeting. I'm very hopeful and optimistic on that. Um, I, uh, last week, um, toured with Council Members Black and Curtis, the WANIC. Lanik, am I pronouncing that correctly? Um, sites at both the Lake Washington Institute of Technology and DigiPen. Um, and it is just such an amazing program. And it was wonderful to see. And we're learning about more and more of these programs and alternative educational opportunities for um, the youth in our community. And it's a program primarily geared towards 11th and 12th graders um, that provides just a variety um, of educational opportunities um, to students. And it was really fun to be in the classrooms, to meet the students, to meet the educators, to see the facility. So thank you to those folks for hosting us on that tour. Uh, looking forward to representing uh, the city of Kirkland at the SEA PIC meeting tomorrow night. I sent everybody um, a brief summary of the agenda items. So um, please let me know by tomorrow night if you have anything you'd like for me to um, present there on behalf of our city. Uh, have the um, SEA board meeting next week and as well as the af an affordable housing committee meeting next week. Um, <clears throat> one other item I emailed out to council earlier today, um, a revised proclamation um, in support of the Iranian American community here in Kirkland and on the east side. Um, I shared it because, and I provided this background in the email, but just in case you didn't have time to read the email. Um, you may recall that, I don't remember exactly when it was recently, in the past few months, um, I uh, brought forth an idea from a local Iranian-American community member, um, Sahar Amini, who had requested uh, a proclamation similar in nature to what Bellevue had issued. And I provided the example of Bellevue's proclamation, which was then approved by council. Since then, um, some uh, changes have been made. Uh, I've David Wilbrook and I met with um, met with Sahar, and David worked with um, Sahar and Mayor Sweet here to in drafting the um, the proclamation that I emailed to all of you earlier this afternoon. So since it is uh, fairly different from the original example that I presented a few months ago, I'm bringing it forth again tonight to ensure that Council is supportive of issuing this proclamation at our next meeting, and then if if so, um, I spoke with Mayor Sweet earlier today about how we want to do this with our new um, <clears throat> process of different categories of proclamations. I know there's been some discussion of wanting to invite some um, members of the Iranian American community to attend our meeting to accept it. Uh, and so that's one possibility. And I leave that to Mayor Sweet to um, <laughs> decide. I think you were supportive of a variety of different options for yeah, no I'm supportive of uh, I know each of you has somebody who you are interested in inviting um, I think that would be great wonderful so do we you need a formal me, vote for this or just the <laughs> head nods and great thank you very much it's beautiful yeah, it thank is. you really and thank written. thank you well to done. David and thank you so much to Sahar uh, for bringing this idea forward to us
Thank you. Councilmember Paspel. Uh, nothing to report. Thank you. Deputy Mayor Arnold. No report. Thank you. Can we have PSRC? <laughs> <laughs> I was counting on you for PSRC. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so for me, not, not a whole lot. I attended the one east side economic outlook meeting at Microsoft last week. Um, economic outlooks aren't really good right now, so it wasn't as fun a meeting as it has been in the past. Um, but for the downturn, they, they continue to report that it, it's going to be short and, it's gonna, and we're going to come out of it pretty quickly. Um, in terms of regional water, uh, we did uh, have a study session on our, on our work plan last week. It was, um, it was a very interesting discussion. I think you got a memo from John with regard to what appears to be what we're going to move forward with. It sounds like we will be keeping the proposed 5.75% increase that we had been sort of forecast by the county by doing some uh, creative financing. Uh, the other thing is uh, MISWAC. You saw the decision from, um, from them to take the NERTS down to the final two, and that's good for us. We also had, uh, you and I met with Claudia on Thursday. Was there anything else that she gave us besides those discussions? Then that's all I have there. Um, I did talk to each of you about the letter that we received from Carl Bradley and uh, the short window of time that he has given us to to try and see if there's a way to um, for us to attain the building. He did lay out a vision that I think is pretty exciting, talk a little bit about the history of the building. I advise you all to go to Wikipedia. There are some very fun facts. But as you all know, this is going to be hard to do in such a short period of time. Um, and because there are so many competing priorities that the, we have at the council right now, so I'd like permission to work with the city manager, bring together groups or, or representatives from, or groups, the Kirkland Parks Community Fund, uh, Studio East, KPC, KAC, uh, and other key stakeholders for a discussion about trying to figure out a way uh, that we can actually get the cannery back. We, we, we bought it for $46 in 19, what? <laughs> and then we sold it? Long ago, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, but it, it's a very important piece of our history. Um, any of you who have not heard some of the stories, they are wonderful stories about it. So um, anyway, so I think I have that permission. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Yes, I, I certainly support us exploring this. Thank you so much for being willing to do some of that work on our behalf. Um, I'm wondering if we can organize tours for those of us who haven't been to the building before. I think that'd be really helpful to visualize the space um, as we go into future discussions on this. Absolutely. Amy can do that. And yeah. uh, Mr. Bradley has said he'd be happy to tour anybody and any group and any other one, people you want to bring, uh, as long as he's in town. He's going to be out of town for a little bit from the 9th to the 13th, but before or after, he's delighted to do that. And if you want to just whet your appetite, the video on the website is absolutely stunning. Okay, with that, it's over to you, City Manager. Get up. No, City manager. Okay. Thank you. Uh, uh, three quick things before we go to the uh, closed session. Um, the first is you have a park board meeting coming up on your calendar. 
a joint meeting with the park board, and we just wanted to confirm if the council wants that to be in person. Uh, you've been meeting in person, they've been meeting in person, but virtual is an option, but I just want to see if you all had a preference. But seeing heads mm -hmm. nod about a joint meeting. Okay, in person, thank you. Um, and then uh, this is a calendar type question. We haven't done this in a long, long time, but as you know, King County has a ballot measure on the uh, April ballot, and it's possible to have them come and give a briefing to the council on that ballot measure and also for the city to contemplate whether it wants to pass a resolution in support of the ballot measure. So uh, that is allowed under our rules, but we haven't done it in a while, but I just wanted to see there would probably only be two meetings that we could do that if the council's interested. So. <clears throat> Which is, oh, is this the? Uh... This is the mental health crisis clinic uh, ballot measure. So probably hear about it tomorrow. <laughs> we'll hear a little bit about it, yes. So just a question whether you wanted a formal presentation or not. And I think Council, do you want a presentation? Yeah. Okay, doke. Uh, thank you. And then finally, I just wanted to give you an update on our racer. We've continued to meet as the board, and we have a preferred candidate, which I hope we'll be able to announce in the next couple days. Uh, we're going to reach out to that candidate, hopefully reach an agreement, and then if all goes well, we'll be acting on March 16th. Uh, to appoint the executive director, and then we'll continue to move forward with uh, the racer implementation. Um, but I think all that part is going well too, but we've identified a lot of a lot of tasks that need to be done to get that up and running well. But uh, we'll have a much more full report um, after the selection of the executive director. Exciting. Yeah. Okay. So I, oh, I, any other calendar updates from anyone else? I see none. Okay. So we will now go into closed session to discuss collective bargaining. We expect to re reconvene a regular meeting only for the purposes of adjournment um, at approximately, city manager? You always say 20 minutes, it always takes 30. <laughs> 11 o'clock. Madam Mayor? <laughs> Madam Mayor? Yes. Um, maybe Darcy can advise us on this, but because this is not an executive session, it is a closed meeting, we could adjourn now, and the closed meeting could just be separate from being wrapped around with a regular meeting. Is, is this session under Section 140 of the OPMA rather than Section 110? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say Kevin's on, actually, so you can oh, have Kevin. Kevin tell you. Yeah, I could uh, advise you if he doesn't want to. It's not, an, it's not an executive session. As you said, it's a closed session. Um, you could just adjourn now. You could just adjourn now. Well, then why, you don't, could. why don't we? <laughs> we are adjourned. <laughs> okay. Close it.